Hi everyone, welcome to Completely Beatles. My name is David Dedrick from Sneaky Dragon. And I'm Ian Boothby, also from Sneaky Dragon. You can differentiate between the two of us. I'm the one who doesn't have a terrible cold. That's true. I am battling an illness. So we advise you to please uh, wash your hands after listening to this podcast. And avoid all things with bubonic plague. Though Though we know that some of the Beatles' best work was done when, say, John had a terrible cold. That's right. So maybe this will be one of our best that, podcasts. That one example <laughs> of them working. We've got the warm milk. We've got yes. the uh, British uh, lozenges. Mm-hmm. What were they called? Zoobs? Zoobs. Zoobs. we yes. got a whole bowl full of zoobs. Yes. And we're ready to go. So I'll end the show by stripping off my shirt and singing Twist and Shout. <laughs> so a normal week. That's right. All right. Good. <laughs> we usually cut that out. <laughs> so why don't you tell the nice folks uh, out here what we're going to be doing today. So today we're going to be looking at the album... The EP slash album Magical Mystery Tour, because this was kind of a weird one. In England, it was released as, it had too many songs for an EP. An EP is four songs. Okay. It had six songs on it in the British version. So they released it as 245s in a gatefold sleeve that had a 28-page booklet with uh, photographs, like stills from the uh, the movie or show. Depends how you want to refer to Magical Mystery Tour as a, as a film or a TV well, show. Well, it came out as a television show first. I guess it did. So we'll call it a show, a TV show. Okay. So it had stills from the show, and then it had um, illustrations that were drawn by this guy named Bob Gibson, drew, drew these really colorful illustrations that, that kind of tell you the story, uh, such as there is, of Magical Mystery Tour. In America, though, uh, they just could not stand the idea of bringing... Like, EPs were not a popular format in the States at mm-hmm. all anyway. Most of us, if we weren't... Anglophiles or interested in the Beatles would never have heard of EPs. Uh, what they they want, what they did instead was they took the the six songs for the Magical Mystery Tour, and then bundled them together with the singles that were released around that time, and then uh, Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane that were came out before Sgt. Pepper, and they kind of put them all together into one package, and that's kind of become the package now. Like um, you can, I be, I believe that in the and I have it at home, and maybe I should have looked. I should have opened up the box and taken a look inside. But in the Magical Mystery Tour, the DVD, I think, the new DVD, I think it has a replica of the 45s inside it. I should have looked, now that I've brought that up. I think I'll cut it out, actually. Just forget I said anything about no, it. No, no, no. You're too lazy to cut anything out. I know that's not going to happen. Here's what you, here's what you can do. Uh, you can put the information on our website, sneakydragon.com. So if you want to find out if that was true... yeah. Check that out. Yeah, of course, us, Dave might be too lazy to do that I as well. I might be too lazy to do that too. He's very sick. I'll everybody. put it. I'll edit. I'll edit this. So this is our first episode that we're not doing any singles as well. Well, because all the singles that came out were were, were bundled in. onto this, and to me, I mean, you can dispute it, but as far as far as I'm concerned, the album version of Magical Mystery Tour with the with the extra singles is part of the Beatles discography. Like, I'm not gonna, you know, be so insanely true to their to their you know chronology that I'm, I'm going to only you know say that the beatles or the british eps are the are the correct version okay well you've because been a chronological stickler really Magical which is Mystery- the which is one of the more uh, difficult sticklers to be that's true you know from from the i mean we did our first episode with the album out of order because you yeah, wanted i the- wanted but it was so confusing to you and probably to me as well because i <laughs> i just gave up on that idea but but yeah i you know and i think that I mean, as we have it now in CD form or, or however you want it, I mean, it is a brilliant album to have, you know, the, all the great songs from Magical Mystery Tour, plus all the brilliant singles that came out at the same time in one place. I mean, that's pretty handy. So, you know, it was either that or completely ignore 
Magical Mystery Tour as an album and roll everything into the Past Masters collections. Mm-hmm. And that would have been sad too because you would have lost the whole package. So well, let I me, think they let, came with the best Let me compromise. ask you this. Uh, did, the, uh, did the TV special come out before the album? It did not. The album came out in England on the 8th of December, the 27th of November in the States. And I don't know why it came out so early. I suppose because if it came out on the 27th of November, then they could uh, time it better with the release of Hello Goodbye, which came out around that time. Uh, I believe. And when we get there, we can talk about it. But um, so it came out a little earlier in the States. It came out on the 8th of, of December. Just so, it, you know, and they'd already sold the, the package. Well, maybe they hadn't. When they sold the package to the to BBC, it was already kind of, yeah, Magical Mystery Tour was already in the charts. It was already mm-hmm. a million seller, you know, it was already way up there in the charts. So the BBC, of course, were pretty happy to, to buy the show and put it on for Boxing Day. So, yeah, no, they didn't follow because it was on the 8th. And, of course, the show was first aired on the 26th of December. Now, when, uh, maybe you won't even know this. Or maybe you would. You probably will because you're you. Uh, when the when the special came on, mm-hmm. I'm sure the ratings were, were pretty solid. Like, oh. I heard it was panned after uh, after it aired. But mm. no one knows that when you're turning on the thing. So, yeah. you know, uh, it must have done fairly well. Now, after it was panned. Yes. Um, did the sales fall fall off? Was that uh, not, considered a bad uh, time for the Beatles? Not for the music, but it did affect um, it did affect doing more with it. Um, like they were going to sell it in the states, but actually, it, because of the bad reviews it got in, the, in England, it actually made it really difficult for them to to get uh, to get any kind of interest in it. Mm-hmm. What it did instead, which was way better for it, was it went on to kind of like almost the equivalent. The '60s equivalent of the of the midnight movie tour. It went from university to university as a, as a rental film. So people, you know, students who had film societies could rent this the prints and bring them into their into the universities oh, or okay. colleges and have you know a magical mystery tour, um, you know, night or whatever, and show the film. And actually, those sales were incredible. And so it actually did really well in that way. Much probably much better than it would have done as a TV show, as a one-off TV show. Having life as kind of an underground Beatles film. I mean that's pretty amazing, and we'll and we'll get more into the films in a in a future we episode. We don't yeah. want to cover, but I think like uh, one thing is uh, they were saying that people mostly had black and white sets, and it's, and the actual that show itself a is a very colorful. It wasn't that people mostly had black and white; it was only shown in black and white. That BBC, oh, is that correct? BBC Two only was in black oh, and white. Oh my stars! Okay, so well that's a big problem. Yeah. So at least when they were showing you at colleges or that's what right. have you on the school tours, that's you're right. getting the full. Uh, deal. The acid they took was much more effective. Uh, I was trying to beat around that bush because we're <laughs> going to be talking about that very shortly. Okay. Do we uh, now? Normally, uh, you you lay down a little bit of context before yeah. we get started. Well, let's just talk about a little bit of the history. This is uh, this is Dave's context corner. Take <laughs> context it away, Dave. Corner with both with K, so we can trademark it. Well, let's just go back a little bit because um, what's interesting to me about Magical Mystery Tour is I don't know if you remember the last show we. As we got near the end of the sessions for for Sgt. Pepper, mm-hmm. they did their la- their final song that they recorded for the album, which was uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band Bracket Reprise Reprise Bracket. Um, John or uh, Paul left for uh, to go to America to join Jane Asher there, who was on tour in the, in the states. So he met her in Colorado, and then they flew into, down to L.A., visited Brian Wilson, dropped he you know played some celery on the song Vegetables. Then he went <laughs> up to Haight Ashbury. And kind of, you know, saw the, the Summer of Love. No, sorry, what real. was the song Vegetables? It's a song by the Beach Boys for the Smile album. All right, that's good to know. And it's just, Okay. I want to chow down my vegetables. Da, 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 da. And during the song, you hear them crunching on vegetables. It's kind of used as a okay. percussion. I'm sure most device. of the people out there knew what you're talking about. Yes, they, I just heard someone's playing the celery on something <laughs> called vegetables. And I went, you know what? I probably shouldn't let this slide. Let's find out what this is. All right, please continue. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I went up to Haight-Ashbury. 
and uh, you know, kind of grooved on the Summer of Love scene there. And then he, while he was there, he heard about this kind of fantastic, legendary thing that was going on and it kind of happened in, in San Francisco just prior to the Summer of Love, which was uh, Ken Kesey, who, who wrote uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and, and Sometimes a Great Notion. Uh, he, had, he had fallen in love with acid. He, was, he became the acid proselytizer. He was the acid messiah. He was going around. He was ready to broadcast the, the great benefits of acid to everyone. And they did these, the, I mean, you probably heard of the Tom Wolfe book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. Right. And that's what it's about. It's about Ken Kesey and this group that surrounded him called the Merry Pranksters. And some of them were like um, Neil Cassidy, who was a friend of Jack Kerouac. He's a character in On the Road. Um, he was part of the group. Um, uh, the char- the uh, sort of stand-up comedian who became Wavy Gravy, mm-hmm. uh, famous at Woodstock for and uh, this kind of commune, the Hog Farm. Uh, he was part of this group. So and then they had this brightly painted school bus with this destination marker on it that said "Further," spelt F-U-R-T-H-U-R for reasons I don't quite understand. Probably okay. to do with acid. <laughs> and they're and they're they just journeyed across America in this crazy bus with all these crazy people on it, and just complete absolute chaos. <laughs> that if you were there, it would have been just so probably so horrible to live through unless you were on acid you know just the you know the amount of yeah it's one of those things that sounds great sounds afterwards. great it's like oh i love yeah. hearing about that that's right but i would not it's like an andy kaufman show hey yeah. that sounds great <laughs> would you like to have been there while he read the whole great gatsby nah probably not no. but it's, it makes a good story it's afterwards. A fun idea yeah. yeah same thing when you finish the trip you just want to take a 24-day bath you know that's just what it feels like when you but uh, what they would do at these uh, acid test was they had Kool-Aid with acid in it and people would drink it and then they had bands playing and, and the Grateful Dead was a big part of that scene and, and there'd be strobe lights going and all kinds of crazy <laughs> stuff and, and all the Merry Pranksters dressed up in costumes and and it's just, it was kind of nutty. It was kind of a nutty scene. So Paul McCartney heard about this and he was really interested in it. But, you know, it, it didn't really work. The idea of a school bus and things, it's not really... So what he did was he transposed it into the context of a, of a British bus trip, which would be like a mystery trip. Right. Because no, in the old days, what parents would do is they'd get onto these buses with a lot of alcohol, and there'd be some entertainment on the bus, maybe an accordion player or whatever, like we see in, in Magical Mystery Tour, and they would sing old songs and drive somewhere. Getting Don't know where they're going. Getting completely drunk. Yeah. And usually they'd end up in Blackpool or some sort of resort town, Brighton or wherever. Sounds nice. And would go to these, you know, and then they would pile out of the bus, mm-hmm. stagger around for a bit, pile back in it, and head back to their... Back home. I'm, I'm assuming that when they staggered out of the bus, there was a good bus cleaning that would go good, on, and then they come back on. I don't know how messy there was accordion no, players there, are. Well, well, I don't think... Okay. I'm not thinking when I'm thinking, like, who's making a mess in the bus. I'm not thinking the accordion player. Yeah. I'm thinking all the drunk British folks in the bus and no bathroom is what I'm thinking. Mm. So, I'm just saying. I don't know. If, and a drive. I, a long drive. <laughs> so, um, so, when Paul McCartney <laughs> was flying back to Britain, mm-hmm. he uh, actually borrowed us a notepad from, his, from the stewardess and he and he wrote down magical mystery tour because he had the idea of a mystery tour so then he had a magical to it that made it more magical and then he <laughs> that's drew right this, writing the word magical mm-hmm. does make things a little bit more magical yeah. that's true and then he uh circle drew a circle and he divided it into quadrants and then he wrote down a couple of ideas and then when he got back to england he presented it to the to brian epstein and the other beatles and he said you know this is an idea we'll do this as a, a film as a tv show and we'll do it as like a, a mystery tour, but a magical mystery tour. We're just going to get in a bus and we're just going to go and see what kind of adventures we can find. Now, quick question to you on this at mm. this point. Uh, they'd had success in film. Why go to TV at this point? Well, I mean, they had success in film. 
why go to TV? Because I think that the idea of doing a film would have involved a lot more money than what they were. Okay. You know. It just so, feels like TV is a step down at that point. Like, helped it helped it all right. You know, I mean, uh, Hard Day's Night did very, quite well. Why? It, it seems like a weird thing if you'd had success in movies. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's different in England where there isn't, there isn't really that... Yeah, yeah. Diff- different. Like people in England still to this day, you'll uh, you'll do your Lord of the Rings movie, and then yeah. you'll go and you'll do your Sherlock, and I people f- will be fine with that. Here's the thing, though. Like they're funding it themselves. Uh huh. They didn't go to anyone else and and get money for it. So if you're going to do a film, you have to go and you have to get people. You have to get your Walter Shenson who produced Help and Hard Day's Night or, right. or whomever to put up a lot of money or to go to the studios. Now, is that a problem a lot of when you're the most it successful is, band in the world? It is a problem because you put yourself into their control. Then they want a script. Then they want writers. Then they want, you know, their... Because it's their money. I know it's their money, but you're the Beatles. It doesn't matter, really. Okay. It's their money. I understand when it's you, their when money. When someone gives you their money, they have a lot more say over what you're going to do than you have over say over their money. I guess I look at someone like, say, a George Clooney right now, and I think, like, when George Clooney enters a movie, yeah. uh, George Clooney has more say than probably the producers at this point because he's the draw. And I'm thinking, like, I, the Beatles I mean, were so possible. much more popular... You know, in their day, than George yeah. Clooney is now. That's like if you know, if if these one set of producers who want to lay down all the rules, yeah. why not go to I don't know the other set of producers who I'm sure would go the Beatles. Yes, uh, here look, go to town. Well, okay, I'll say two things. One is I would like to see George Clooney truly test that theory. You know, truly test how far he could go with his crazy demands before they said, George, okay, you are just an actor. You have not put any money up in this film. Mm-hmm. This is our money you're putting on the line. Because as we know, Hollywood so actors wear... are not known for crazy demands. It's... They well, all are about, humble. I'm talking about crazy they... creative demands. Okay. I'm not just talking about the fact that he wants two hairdressers. Okay. I'm saying he wants to do the film in a, in a purple in a purple gorilla suit. Okay. On the George Clooney side of things, all he did... Okay. Here's what here's what Clooney did was what he yeah. made himself the producer yeah. as well, whatever that means. So now okay. he gets say. Like the Beatles well, back in the day could have been also produced by the Beatles... If you, if you, you know, but I, that really wasn't a thing that you did once, at the time. Once again, there are levels of producer. Oh, I got though, you. Right? But doesn't it feel like a bit of a step down to go from well, movie, movie, TV show, and then the TV show people go boo, like wow, <laughs> you're getting boo and on TV. Well, I mean, it could have been an even more expensive boo if it was a movie, you know. So for them, because what what was what led to Magical Mystery Tour was the fact that the Beatles were were started to direct their own promos. And they were putting together their own promotional, fil- you know, videos and stuff like that. Sure. We could call them videos. Their films of them performing their songs, because what that did was it made it easier for them to to sell. Like they didn't have to go to America and perform in the Ed Sullivan show. They could send a, a promo film of Paperback Writer to Ed Sullivan, and Ed Sullivan would gladly play it, uh, you know, and play it on his on a show. Sure. Millions of people would see it, and it would get you know lots would be out now. There. When they did that, was it just them uh, performing as a band, or was there were there interesting visuals as well? Well, if you watch, I mean, it's kind of boring at the beginning, mm-hmm. and then it gets more interesting. But even when they're doing Rain and when they're doing Paperback Writer, I mean, there are them standing in rooms, and there are attempts to give it some visual interest. Right. By the time you get to like um, uh, Strawberry Fields, where they're in a field with a weird instrument with these strings that run up into a tree. And it's, you know, it runs backwards and there's polarization where, it kinda, oh, okay. you know, and there's all kinds of visual effects and stuff like that, right? Because it feels like that's what they were doing in, uh, 
you know, in help. You know, you had like, uh, there's... Well, a, they weren't doing it. Oh, I got you. Richard Lester was doing okay, it. Okay, when I say they were, I mean the band was. As in, you know, we're, the way the band is being presented, there were things in help that you could take out and just go, it would be a modern uh, video today. Sure, sure. And the same thing with Magical Mystery Tour. You could yeah. take I Am the Walrus, and, and it has been like currently played as a video on its own. Yeah. There you go, enjoy. Mm-hmm. You know, though we didn't have, you know, music videos up until, you know, Mike Nesbitt did Rio or whatever, and then uh, then we went down that road. But uh, but yeah, well, I mean, I mean, they existed in a way. They, they existed, did, yeah. yeah, as filmed promos. But for the most part, it was them uh, as a band performing. There wasn't a channel doing it. I mean, when when MTV started, let's let's say that pretend that's the start of their music video. Mm. You know, they played us a, a Buggle song from four years before MTV started. That was a film promo. Do you know the same way that I saw the only reason I knew about XTC as a, a as a young boy in grade six was because I saw. Uh, this is pop. And same same with me with Nigel t- talking. Uh, yeah, I saw Talking Heads on SCTV. Yeah, where it was a guy parodying that type of show before that type of show really, really was popular. Yeah, yeah. Mike Todd was that? Was it? Jerry Todd. Jerry Todd. That was right. Rick Moranis's Jerry Todd. That's right. Um. So, so the Beatles for to the for the Beatles it, to do television for them was a step up. Oh, okay. You know, for well, them. you are seen by more people. I mean, the BBC it's, that was the only thing you could watch, really. Yeah. You know. And they wanted, I mean, their idea for it was to have like a, a holiday special almost, have something interesting for people to watch at Christmas time mm-hmm. that wasn't all just, you know, kind of phony Christmas stuff, um, you know, Morecambe and Wise special or whatever. You know, here is something absolutely brand new that you've never seen before, literally. You've right. never seen anything like this. Now, is the population at that point hep that this is all about uh, kind of an acid trip as well at this point? It should, yeah, because uh, Paul McCartney had had come out in, a, in a, I think, in a Saturday evening post interview that uh he had taken acid and they were already uh doing interviews about transcendental meditation oh i got that with them but what i'm saying is was there anything comparable that had been on television on say bbc no No, so that's the thing like this is this This is is all new this This is cutting edge so so what yeah Yeah, when you're watching it okay this is cutting edge or blimey as they would say (laughs) so yeah so he came back so only five days after like the the final mixing sessions uh, for Sgt. Pepper, the Beatles were back in the studio recording the title track for Magical Mystery Tour. It was just that quick a turnaround. I think because Paul McCartney, and I don't want to say this in an insulting way, but he was the most careerist of the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Like, he was the one who wanted to be in a band. I think, and I think Ringo would have been too, would be that way too, but his attitude would have been like, if you'll have me, I'll stay, you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas for George... And if you don't, he'll go and drum for someone else <laughs> and he'll drum for the rest of his that's life. That's right. He'll be fine. For George and John, their attitude was... You know, whatever. You know, they they were not they were not sold on you know the whole idea of the Beatles of staying in the Beatles, particularly George. George had really right. really withdrawn. Well, this is this is my question. Sorry, I'm going to keep peppering you with questions throughout sure. this. Um, was one of the reasons they that Paul was let's do the next thing mm. because he was worried the band yeah. was going to break up. Yeah, so we sure. got to keep busy. So he wanted to have this constant momentum, momentum happen, yeah, yeah, happening that, that kept their attention to what they were doing. The the problem was. Um, the problem was is that for the Beatles, because they were, it's hard to it's hard to explain. There's a kind of two different things working for them. There was this idea for them, you know, they're from Liverpool. They had this kind of northern, you know, northern kind of up, upbringing, and with that came this kind of sense of I don't want to call it false modesty, but that sense that one doesn't make a big fuss about oneself. No, you don't in England. You know? No. And you'll get smacked down immediately. <laughs> you get smacked down, particularly you'll if you're, get, you'll particularly, get a big head. And if you get a big head, you need to get that head smacked. <laughs> and especially if you're lower class, absolutely. You know, you're so, you know, 
so, you know, even though everyone around them has recognized them as, as geniuses, they refuse to recognize themselves as geniuses mm -hmm. often. Sometimes they would. Sometimes they'd be full of it and proclaim to people around them that they're as big as Jesus or that they're as good as Beethoven. And other times... But they mean good uh, as big as uh, British Jesus, who was a very humble, very humble fellow. Humble fellow. Not yeah, like can, Jesus wasn't humble anyway. He could burn. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so now we have... Now our show's going to be burned in the South. Oh, okay. That's that's always good for sales. Stamp out completely Beatles. I'd like to see how that they try burning a podcast. That'd be, that'd be interesting. So, so what they did was they insisted that anyone could do what they did with this little hard work. Like, if you put in the time, you could be the Beatles, which is absolutely, absolutely insane, because it doesn't matter how much time you put in, you cannot be the Beatles. But it's a nice dream for uh, teenagers to have. Sure, it's a nice and dream. And I'm sure many of them but, jumped on that, went to the garage, and and, <laughs> well, and sure, tried and they, it. they produced some pretty good stuff, but they did not become the Beatles, you know, because the Beatles were the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And their own inability to recognize that kind of made it hard for them to follow their own genius because, you know, to them, they're not genius. And the other problem is, is that because they're really good at music, then they must be really good at other things too. So we can make a television show. That's easy. Just like John Lennon says, and, you know, all you need is love. Mm -hmm. It's easy, right? It's, well, it's easy. It's not easy to make it good, but it is easy to do it. <laughs> so, you and I could record an album right now. It wouldn't be very good, oh, but yeah. we could do it. We could do it. It sure. would probably be easy. It is. Very, <laughs> it wouldn't be good. My, my playing would be very easy. That one chord would <laughs> certainly start to pall on people, though. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I kind of wonder if they shouldn't have taken a little time off. You know, they had four months between Revolver and Sgt. Pepper where they did really absolutely nothing and recharged their batteries, came back into it with a real focus, a sense of focus. Mm -hmm. I mean, they pushed themselves back into the Magical Mystery Tour before Sgt. Pepper had even been released. Mm -hmm. They're, they're, you know, before there's any acclaim. I mean, if they had... But would acclaim help you or would acclaim cripple it's you? Well, I mean, it didn't, it didn't hurt them with Revolver and Revolver was very much acclaimed and, and Sgt. Pepper was very anticipated as the next, next album. Mm -hmm. Um, so... It's hard to say. I mean, the Beatles, because of the gang mentality, it, it, things seem to affect them differently than it would a single person facing that situation might have a, a harder time dealing with it than a group of people who are, you know, kind of hidden away in their studio working away like wizards. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would think that uh, for musicians, being in the studio would be the only time it would feel normal. The second you step out the door, yeah. it becomes crazy town. Sure. So you're in the studio, no one can come in, no one can bother you, you're musicians, you're with your friends, mm. you're with the only people who understand what you're going through in the yeah. world. No one else could understand what it means to be a Beatle. So yeah, I could understand why you'd want to immediately go, you know, why would you want to spend some time off? Well, if you read the Hunter Davies book, The Beatles... Um, there's a, it talks about Ringo Starr visiting his, his mom and his stepdad and he, him staying there till it was dark because he was afraid to leave the house, you know, just cause it's just such a hassle and so, and so fraught, you know, with tension and people's expectations and screaming and right. people grabbing at you that is just no fun, you know, it was just, so yeah. But the thing, I mean, it was great for them to be in the studio, but the thing was for that, what it became for them was without any deadline pressure. Without someone saying, you know, we need a record for Christmas. We need a record for summer. You know, we need our two albums that, it, then that took away all the all the like the tension that existed before. So you know they could really had to really ratchet it up to do like a Rubber Soul to do a Revolver, right? You know, and even Sergeant Pepper, you know, had that feeling to it, even if because they were so excited about what they're doing. But after that, it became these kind of low intensity everyday recordings. It was kind of work a day atmosphere mm -hmm. of just going in and doing a little bit of work, and then we'll go and do something else, and. And because they could record at no cost, so, and then, because, you know, and then, so, for for everyone, except for the songwriter, you know, the songwriter who had, you know, the guy who had the song had to kind of get the band together, 
kind of kind of um uh, what would you say he had to kind of uh he had, had to kind of you know kind of pester everyone to get down to work motivate and them motivate them to work in his song and 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 then you know they're not that interested it's not their song so they're just kind of giving it half half their attention and meanwhile the engineers and George Martin the producer and and often session musicians are just hanging around doing nothing mm-hmm. you know and you know what's Ringo's famous quote about Sgt. Pepper what did he learn how to play chess <laughs> you know, so because for him, once the drums were recorded, that was it. He didn't have much to do with what was happening. You know, it would be George, John, and Paul, you know, with their heads together trying to work out things. And so, like, and despite, like, Paul's best intentions, Paul was taking acid. Paul was smoking pot. So even if you say to someone, let's get really down to work and we're going to work really hard, you're in this druggy state as well, you know, so your yeah. attention wanders. Even if you have, I mean, the thing about pot is pot goes away and then you're, you're back. Yeah. But the thing with acid is it comes back at you every so often, like okay. where you don't expect it. And then all yeah. of a sudden everything does a shift <laughs> and this can be days later. So, so yeah, you're never, you're never far away from your friend. Yeah. So a couple of times, if you, in the Lewison's completely, complete Beatles at Abbey Road, he mentions there's like a seven hour jam session one day that they recorded 16 minutes of. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine how tedious that would have been as an engineer just sitting there after, you know, set up the mics, get everything ready. And then you sit there with the Beatles noodle away for six, you know, for 16 hours, for seven hours. And then another time, uh, the day that Sgt. Pepper was released. So the day this fantastic album comes out, they did the same thing. They sat and endlessly played a song that Lewison has heard. And so he, and he describes it as untitled, unplanned, highly tedious, and frankly, downright amateurish instrumental jams. So that's, you know, because they just, you know, even though they're like, we're going to focus on this, we're going to get right down to it. At the same time, their attention kind of would drift away. And yeah. pretty soon, before you know it, what's when you're, you know, well, I know that you like them, but I had I had a friend who was a uh, worked as an engineer in radio and he worked for the Dr. Bandolo people. Right. And they would laugh their head off <laughs> when they were stoned at the stuff they were doing, which wasn't funny at all. All right. Well, I'll explain who they are. Oh, OK. Quick. They were local. They were, a yeah. C- they were a CBC, uh, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation sketch uh, sketch show. And yeah. my connection with them is one of the first things I ever did when I was 14 was with Dr. Bandolo. They kind of inspired me to do sketch comedy. So, yes. But uh, but they were a little bit, yes. as you say. So it can affect your judgment. Just, just a yeah. little. Uh, yeah, sure. They, yeah. They enjoyed the they enjoyed the sixties and seventies, and so when they uh, you know when they were doing these instrumental jams in the state of mind they were in it seemed absolutely fascinating what they were doing you know the, the results were not fascinating or any good at all really right the engineers so, were sober and uh, not as well <laughs> though though it's again it's a tough one for the engineers in that you know one they're getting paid yeah they're getting paid probably okay. You know, sure. and uh, George, they got okay. they, they're okay. Yeah. You know what? They're getting paid as good as engineers get paid. Let's mm-hmm. go with that. Yeah. Uh, and you can't really leave and complain and go like, ah, oh, there's all this noodling around yeah. all day. Oh, who are you doing that with? The Beatles. Oh, boo hoo. <laughs> well, says you, pe- the one says the coal miner. Yeah. And two says the other engineer who's like, oh, I wish I was working with the Beatles. So. Maybe, but he, that guy might be working with the Pink Floyd or he might be working for um, Another band, the Zombies. He might be working on on uh, Odyssey and Oracle. True. So he might be having a fantastic time setting up all this equipment for guys who are working really hard at getting an album down because they're paying for it themselves mm-hmm. and need to work and get it done really quickly. And so that guy has a really interesting time problem solving and doing all these things. Meanwhile, Jeff Emmerich, this brilliant guy who created all these sonic, all these great sonic tricks and and brought so much creativity, is listening to the Beatles play uh, blues jams for seven hours. You know, so it's just. I don't. I'm not putting them down. I'm just pointing out that's kind of where their heads were at at that time. Yeah. Um, 
in between that, they did produce things and they produced some brilliant stuff. So it's kind of amazing that they could kind of get it together and then kind of drift Maybe apart. Maybe you're also seeing the noodling around uh, that uh, you would not normally see. Maybe they would normally be doing this at their hotel or that was, together and they're doing it in studio because mm, where else are they going to do it? That became the problem. They didn't bring in songs. They brought. They just came in with an idea and they kind of wrote in, in the studio. Right. And so the problem was is, is you know... The studio became their home, really. The studio became their home. The studio became this kind of workshop but for the other guys who are waiting for you to finish working in your workshop, it's kind of boring. they're watching a reality TV show. No. You know, they're watching they're watching stuff go on and they, people going about their daily business. Go. I'm talking and, about the other Beatles. They don't care about Paul's reality show. Oh, okay. And Paul doesn't care about John's reality show. And George doesn't care about John and Paul's reality show. And Ringo particularly didn't care <laughs> about any of the reality shows. So what's interesting to us, what we would love to be a fly on the wall for, uh-huh. has become. It becomes just routine for other people, right? right? So it becomes a boring job. But and to be fair, a lot of jobs are boring. So, sure. so you got to give them uh, give them a little bit of that <laughs> too. It's like okay, all right. Well, let's start the album with the fantastic magical mystery tour. All right. I, let's just uh, uh, the overall you know feeling of this album. I mean, the the last album I was talking about uh, how it felt like the circus comes to town, kind of the psychedelic circus comes yeah. to town, and then there was a bit of a nostalgia uh, undertone to mm-hmm. it. I think there's a real nostalgic undertone to this one. Okay. And I mean, it's so it's so druggy. This one. I mean, you are literally going on a drug trip. Yeah. They are picking you up and taking you on a drug trip. Yeah, you know that goes that goes all the way around. You know, and, and it's it's amazing to me. Like, how long has it been since you know she loves you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going from she loves you, yeah, 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 to yellow matter custard dripping from a dead dog's eye. Yeah. How many years has has the transition been from that to the? It's amazing. Yeah. So you know, just a little under four years. I guess. Four years. Just think of any other band that you can think of. Has any other band gone through that kind of transition? You know, and this and that amount of time—that's just—that's just amazing to me. No, their progression was amazing. I mean, the, the I, I mean, mean, and to and the fans, the, mm-hmm. to the fans, it's been four years as well. Yeah. You know, so you know, the ones that fell in love with that yeah. now have this, and that might be a very, very different audience. This could be very jarring to hear this one. Yeah. You know. Well, that's—I mean, we didn't talk about it last time, but um, I was reading a, a interview with Mark Lindsay, who played with Paul Revere and the Raiders. Mm-hmm. They were a pretty fairly successful American act. They had their own TV show, and I think they played on Hullabaloo or something. But they, um, I always felt that band was about fifty percent outfits. Like I think fifty percent of the what people liked yeah. about the band was the outfits. I guess. That's whenever I hear like whenever I saw like the Flintstones uh, episode where it's like all bands have to have a gimmick, I always think like Paul Revere and the Raiders. Those yeah. guys, they had the outfits. No, they did. And they, there they you did. go. But they were way more like garagey than you'd think. Oh yeah, when yeah. You look at their costumes. But they all dressed as. Yeah. You know, old-timey American uh, guys. So, yeah, that's what you remember. They were reacting against the British invasion, Mm -hmm. right? I didn't know that, but that's very cool. Yeah. So, um, what the... uh, Mark Lindsay, who was the singer for for the band, he he talks about hearing Sgt. Pepper for for the first time. And you felt like you had kind of caught up to Revolver. You felt like, okay, we're kind of close to Revolver. We've kind of got close to what the Beatles achieved here. And then they heard Sgt. Pepper, and they just realized the Beatles had just completely outdistanced them again in a way yeah. that seemed impossible to catch up. Yeah. You know, because it's, it's not just that the Beatles advanced, it's that they led the advance. Yeah. It's not that other people were advancing and they were like, oh, I'm going to, I'll do what he did. They were like, 
the originators. Well, it's like what happens with technology, where you go, like, you went from, you know, in the last century, the airplane, to we're in space now. Yeah. And you're like, how's that possible? It doesn't seem... But technology moves along exponentially, because it builds on itself, and I think that's what happens creatively as well. So you have incredible... Because it's doubling it's doubling what's already been there before. Sure. And I mean, and it's not to say that they worked out, you know, uh, isolated from everything. They were affected by oh, yeah. other bands, the Who or the Rolling Stones or Jimi Hendrix or whoever, you know, Musically, you know, they threw into their own kind of Beatles soup and and incorporated those elements into their into their music, um, but still miles ahead of everyone else. Absolutely, and I think like, and again, this is probably one of their druggiest albums. I would say, probably why I like it so much. Very good. Even though you are straight edge, I'm a straight You're edge. You're not. You you have not uh, ever really drank. You have never done drugs. That's true. There you go. Uh, so so I'm this a is square. That's well, what well the no, because is. you don't because you don't need it because you can get there through music <laughs> and you can get there through other means. So there's no there's no need. But uh, with the with the nostalgia, what I feel in this one is it's like when you do go on a drug trip, it's almost like being in a dream and like a dream sorts your thoughts out, but it uses what you've already got in your head. So uh, you know, in this case, it feels like. You know, they're going, they're using their past, but then, like in a dream, yeah. your school now is bigger than it was. Or like, you know, it's, you're remembering your mom, but she's really tiny or something. And that's, and that's what it feels like this is. It's a warped, nostalgic, uh, tour around England. Yeah. And what's, what I, what I, what I find interesting about the song, well, of course, we talked about how it started five days after. Right. Now we're talking um, about the song itself, Magical, Magical Mystery, Mystery Tour. Yeah. That's right. And so Paul comes into the studio and he's got three chords. And he's got one line. And he's like, okay, fellas, let's make a song. <laughs> so he just starts playing, you know, the kind of basic track that he had, he had in mind. And then he had them like shout out ideas. You know, hey, let's, you guys shout out fun things. But pretty soon they're like, I can't think of anything. And so then they had to kind of sit down and like do the actual hard graft of of like working out the song and trying to figure, figure it out. Yeah, I mean, there's not much to the song itself. It's good. It's a good, uh, it's a good entry point. Yeah. It takes you, here's the start mm-hmm. of the trip. Yeah, it's you know. not much of a song, really. You know what it is, though. It's a real good start. It's more to, of an experience, you know. And I know it's a. I know it's also again the TV show slash movie. But it feels like you know. I know Paul. You were talking about Paul's love of musicals. Yeah. This feels like almost not uh, like a West End musical where it's starting like, let's gather around and here's how the musicals start and all the characters come out and now let's begin and uh, and here we go. I don't know if Paul was a big fan of musicals. Well, he was uh, in in one of the first albums. He was. I'm trying to remember the song. Well, he, he did. Yeah, he did like uh, the mu- a song for the Music Man till yeah. till til there was you and. But I mean, he was doing uh, he was doing versions that like based on like Peggy Lee. Oh, okay. So he was hearing those versions. On so the it radio. wasn't based on the thing. It was like he wasn't seeing the musical and then and then taking the song. He's like he heard like a, a jazzier version by Peggy Lee and he said, oh, that's that's pretty good. I guess when I was listening to it, it, it felt to me like the start of a musical. Uh, you know, but again, again, these musicals were probably based on these albums. Yeah. Something like Godspell. You okay. know, where it's like oh, let's sure. let's bring people in now. Gather around. We're about to go on the trip. Everybody, mm-hmm. here we go. And uh, and everyone joins in. Yeah, well, things like Hair and Godspell and, and Jesus Christ Superstar are, mu- are much later. I mean, not super later, but yeah. in, in terms of 60s time, you know, two years is it's amazing, 20 years, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And everything influenced everything. Yeah. So, yeah, for instance, as an example of unfoc- the unfocused nature, what, when they brought in the, you know, they decided they needed a horn, so they brought in the horn guys to, to do, the, uh, do the songs. Well, like McCartney had trouble even, like, conveying what he wanted to them because... And then he and George finally, George Martin set sent these guys off. You know, just go have some, go have some tea, and we'll figure this out. Mm-hmm. And they still, they still had trouble working. So this one guy named Elgar Howarth, he, um, he actually kind of wrote out his own, uh, sco- like his own score, and or you know, and so they did that. So they said, okay, that's good, that's good enough. 
you know that's kind of what we want so <laughs> go for it yeah it's just it's interesting to me one one of these one of the things i find in a lot of these songs is you really do have the uh, twist at the end you do have it goes in one direction and gives you a little just a little dark undertone or if it's a light song then it if it's a light song it gives you a dark undertone if it's a dark song it gives you a light you're talking undertone. about the kind of the piano play of it? well i'm not talking about that i'm talking lyrically like how it's you know magical mystery tour is coming to take you away mm-hmm. and then it ends with the magical mystery tour is dying to take you away dying to take you away that's a that's a weird little turn of a phrase you think so you know dying to yeah dying or, to do something i'm dying to do something yeah that's i know but it also it also means other things as well like i find there's a little bit of darkness to that okay and again with all these things maybe that's just something that i'm interpreting it's such a happy 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 yeah. thing till the very last line in it is yeah. come on gather around we're dying to take you away okay well maybe i mean the i wouldn't put it past the beatles to get on willy wonka's nuanced. boat something's gonna happen be nuanced. and by the way the the traffic sounds on the song were, were added from the abbey road sound effects library oh neat yes their album volume 36 Traffic noise in stereo. Now, those of you... Uh, okay, now we can finally reveal why we've been having the traffic noises behind our podcast yes. every episode. It's a tribute that's right. to that. We use volume 35, traffic noises, in mono. That's right. So yeah. that's what we've got. If you if you hear in the background the sirens and what have you, you're welcome. It's a subtle tribute Dave wanted to have since the beginning of the show. Yeah. And we've had it every episode. So there, now you know why. The other interesting thing about this song is after this song, they wouldn't actually return to any Magical Mystery Tour material, like with the idea of it being a Magical Mystery Tour until four months from now. They did do another song because they did uh, Your Mother Would Know. Mm-hmm. But actually, Paul wrote that intending it to be for the Our World broadcast, which became, it was between him and John. John wrote What all was you the need- Our World broadcast? Well, we'll talk about it in a bit, but All You Need Is Love yeah. was, that's what was broadcast on Our World. Okay. And they were, because the Beatles agreed to write a song for this special. And so they both wrote a song. Paul wrote, your mother would know, and John wrote, all you need is love. And okay, so John I, won that. Won John that. won that, that battle. <laughs> okay. He's probably very happy. Those of you keeping score at home. He's probably very happy. All right. Anything else on Magical Mystery no, Tour? We can move Moving on. on to The Fool on the Hill. Yeah. Um, in, uh, in his book, and once again, I'll bring up the Hunter Davies book. Um, when there, uh, If you remember last, ep- last episode, I was talking about the songwriting session he was at for, with a little help from my, my friends. And Paul, during that session, he started playing Fool on the Hill for John. Just so he could hear it, he said, I'm working on the song, and he played it, and John was said, well, you should work on that a bit more, that's really good. So I guess that was put away until, mm-hmm. you know, so perfect place to bring it out. And it's basically, you know, John's I Am The Walrus, that's the song for, yeah. his song for this. This would be Paul's major contribution to, to Magic Mystery. Yeah, I feel, I feel uh, this is, uh, I always think of Nowhere Man with this, but it's, it's almost Nowhere Man but more aware like yeah. it's no more man that's kind of got his act together and like the whole thing is this guy's a fool in the hill everyone everyone thinks he's a fool yeah but then he thinks they're a fool and yeah. we kind of and we we kind of take his perspective and go like no they just don't get him that's right and if you're a teenager that's a that's a nice vibe for you it's like <laughs> sure. everyone thinks you're this no sure. no you know you know the you know the truth buddy uh, so apparently mccartney wrote the song at his dad's house he's just noodling around on the piano and played this chord and uh once again it kind of it kind of falls into the I guess it's not quite as much. I won't say it. There's another song that's more falls more into that. I was thinking Penny Lane kind of sound with that piano sound, but it's hard. Oh yeah, it's yeah, hard not it, yeah. to play a song and not have a Penny Lane vibe because it's so piano ridden. But right, uh, but just that uh, uh, it just seemed to at that time you just seemed to find a really easy. And then he also, although there are three flautists that play on 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 the song, mm-hmm. he he Paul um, added recorder. 
<laughs> this one of those guys is so terrible. Those people who can play like many instruments and can just pick up an instrument and say, oh, we need a recorder for the song, fellas. I'll figure it out. Well, to be fair, a recorder is something that we all learned in like grade three. That's not the hardest instrument in the world to well, learn. Well, you're looking at it from the point of view of a person who learned in grade three. I don't know if Paul McCartney learned how to play the recorder. I'm, I'm bet. I don't think that okay. they had recorder like at Quarry School in Liverpool, in a okay. working class school. The recorder, recorder isn't the classes. most complicated instrument in the world. It's, it's on par that. with the harmonica. I have not it, heard you doing any songs with a recorder. Well, sir, uh, I will see you on the next uh, on the next song because there's no lyrics, so I won't be able to talk to it. Because one, uh, one other thing about this one, and may, again, this is my, just be my interpretation of it, but uh, the idea of someone calling, making fun of uh, uh, of somebody you know, a lot of people, it feels like at this time, were making fun of the Beatles. Like uh, at this t- at this time on sitcoms, they were they were the target. Okay. You yeah. know, or as we've mentioned in previous shows, uh, James Bond. You know, saying the best way to listen to them is wearing earmuffs. Yeah. So you know, they've they they get a bunch of heat. You know, as much as praise as they get. To be fair, he was in the Antarctica when he said that. Who who was saying that? James Bond. <laughs> Well, those of you that watch the movie know that is not the case at all. Uh, but yeah, they were they were a target of of uh, you know of mockery. Look at these long haired da 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 da. And the more that they experimented, the more mockery <coughs> they got. So I can see how this kind of song yeah. would appeal to sure. uh, to Paul because people sure. I'm sure were calling him uh, a fool. <laughs> Possibly. I mean, I may have had personal meaning to him, and I mean, he may be talking about acid. Mm-hmm. We talked before about the us versus them counterculture split there's the old idea of the fool the the, you know the fool with the king you know and the and the fool in in shakespearean you know text is always the most knowledgeable person you know uh the one the only person who can actually say the truth yeah so you know there's a lot this could be let's get paul mccartney on the phone and ask him him because he's still still around he's still recording he He probably wants to promote his new song yeah yeah queenie um so uh, I just want to say one more thing about the recorder. Please. Because did you know that Paul McCartney produced a single for the Bonzos? Well, why don't you say what the full name of that band is? The Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. And their Who? connection with Magical Mystery yeah, Tour they is... Were, they were in the, the movie Magical Mystery Tour. They're the band that plays during the, the uh, striptease sequence. They do the last song on the in the film. Yeah. Which is odd. It's like, it's your film, but you're giving the last yeah. song to the Bonzos. You know, uh, Traffic also were going to be in the movie. They did a, a song called Here We Go Around the Mulberry Bush. They filmed a promo for it. And then it was not put into the film, but they did do a song. If uh, it's it's an extra track now on on the uh, collection. But Even Paul collection. plays recorder on a on a Bonzo song. Yeah, it's I'm the Urban Spaceman. He oh he re- which is re- one of their more popular songs. Yeah, he recorded under the the uh, name Apollo C Vermouth, and uh, <laughs> he played recorder on it. Much to Vivian Stanchel, the singer the singer of the Bonzo. He because the Bonzos were a band that they all played their instruments no matter what the instrument was. They insisted on playing it. Right. Even no matter how badly you played it, you could at least fake it. You know so. If you need a tuba, we can get a tuba. We can play it, you know. So I think he was a little upset that Paul insisted, but and Paul. I'm not giving Paul. I'm not giving new news to 95 percent of people listening. But those of you that don't know who Neil Innes is from the Bonzos, also went on to do uh, a thing called the Ruddles, yeah. which was uh, they did a special called All You Need Is Cat. It started off uh, with, with it was on Saturday Night Live. It was on it was Rutland Weekend TV, a, right. a show that Neil Innes did with Eric Idle after Monty Python. But it all finished. came together in a special uh, they did called uh, the All You Need Is Cash, yes. which is one of my favorite things in yeah. the world. And uh, it's you can look on YouTube, you can find it, and uh, just look up the Ruddles. If you don't know what I'm talking about, and you're in any way a Beatles fan, yeah. uh, I've just given you the greatest gift there is. Go <laughs> go check that out as soon as you're done listening to us. And if you're a fan of the Ruddles, you might enjoy the Bonzo Dog Duo Band as well. You should check them out. Yes. They were a, 
the reason I became interested in them is because I read a, a review of them in Rolling Stone, the Rolling Stone Record Review Guide that gave their album History of the Bonzos five stars and said, if you want to understand British comedy pre-Monty Python, you should have this record. And because I love Monty Python so much, I made it my absolute mission in life to find that record. And it did not disappoint. Cool. All right. So, so uh, next song Monty. is uh, Flying. And uh, I'm, my thoughts on the lyrics on this are non-existent. So uh, back to you, Dave. <laughs> well, I guess this would be the, the first the, be- the first Beatles instrumental to appear on, on, a, on a record that's an EMI record. Mm-hmm. Because they did have Cry for a Shadow on, on, I guess, on Polydor when they recorded with Tony Sheridan. But yeah, this would be their first one. And they, and they recorded 12-bar original. We talked about that when they did Rubber Soul. But that did not come out. So, that, so this would be their first appearance of a... Of a Instrumental. And they actually recorded other instrumental songs for for use in Magical Mystery Tour. They recorded one called Shirley's Wild Accordion. Uh, Shirley Evans, she plays the accordion on the bus. There's a sequence where they're yes. singing songs. And so there's supposed to be a part in the film where there was like a crazy accordion track. <laughs> and John Lennon and Paul McCartney wrote, wrote the song for her and they produced it um, themselves. But I guess it was left out of the film. Is it, is it anywhere? Is it available to I don't be know. Heard? I don't know if it's ever... Oh, okay. And then... Um, well, Lewison's heard it because he has a- had access to all the tapes, but, and then, then they did a song called the, or a thing called the bus. And what that actually was, it used parts of the looped sequence, um, from flying. And this, cause the original flying had this kind of weird, uh, saxophone at the end of it, but it sounded like it was taken from a rec- record. It didn't, it wasn't someone in the studio playing it. It sounded like it was just, they just added a record of someone playing the saxophone from some mm. kind of, uh, contemporary album onto the song near the end of it for reasons unknown. So this uh, song, The Bus, uses a bit of that. And then the final one was uh, Jesse's Dream, which is uh, the scene where Aunt, Auntie Jesse's having that scene where uh, John Lennon is a waiter shoving yeah. all the spaghetti onto Incredibly it. disturbing scene. Yes, very disturbing. Which is based on a dream that John Lennon had. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they wrote this kind of weird electronic, uh, kind, of no- kind of weird electronic track for that. But that wasn't actually done at Abbey Road, so there's not much information about it. So yeah, so this, but this was the only one to make it onto the onto the album proper. And is, really is this the only one uh, after that? Do they ever do an instrumental again? I can't think of any off the top of my All head. All right, then probably that doesn't exist because the top of your head is pretty full of these <laughs> so this kind of information. So yeah, like I was saying, they they did this version. They did a few versions of it, and they had like this weird like saxophone end to it. And when when the Lucian's describing it, I'm kind of wondering if it's not some sort of saxophone preset that was on the Mellotron, mm. which can have that kind of pre-recorded sound. And so they're just kind of noodling that. So it gave that kind of weird, almost recorded sound of a saxophone playing. Because if, I don't know if you watched any of the Mellotron things that I posted onto the Completely Beatles Facebook mm-hmm. page, but um, there's a scene where Paul McCartney singing a song, just playing the, the, um, the left-hand side of the Mellotron that plays complete, complete um, pieces of music. So you could conceivably... Play like he plays. He sings a whole song to a guitar piece, to a guitar bit that's on the Mellotron. But I wonder if you could do the same with the saxophone part as well. Hmm. I don't know for sure. So they had that. On, basically, the song was like nine minutes, nine and a half minutes long by the time they finished it, <laughs> and then they had edited it down to two two minutes Good and seventeen call. seconds. Good call. And yeah, but just okay. Brilliant, George George guitar on it. Just that that whole his 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 plucked part on that song is it's fantastic. And then and then John's Mellotron playing uh, is is great as well. I'm not certain which is Mellotron and which is organ like which which is which because it sounds a little bit like the mellotron playing in the brass setting okay but then the mellotron in the background is a different setting and i'm not sure what it was but it's it's very good and what's interesting about the 
I just want to go to the film for a second, sure, or the sure. TV show for a second. Is the footage that it's played to actually came from Doctor Strangelove? And because, oh, really? Yeah, because the producer of um, they got this uh, producer who worked with Richard Lester named Dennis O'Dell, uh, and he later worked with George Harrison on handmade films. He came in and he he um, and because he'd worked on he knew Stanley Kubrick and had done had some connection to Doctor Strangelove, he was able to borrow this footage from Kubrick to use for the sequence. And of course, it's fantastic when we watch it now with all the changing colors and the music playing. It would have been really un- disappointing on on black, black and white television. television yeah. 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 With a mono speaker, you know, not, not much fun. Although the mono is a better better mix of it. All right, so uh, the next one is George's contribution, Blue Jay Way. Yeah, and that feels like uh, the drugs are kicking in. <laughs> okay. Yeah, now we're uh, now we're uh, now we're now we're on the trip, sure. man. <laughs> yeah, there's a fog upon L.A. and there's a fog uh, filling up. Mm. Your head as well a little sure. bit, and here we go. It's 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 definitely it, the most psychedelic song on. on like it has like all the effects, the less lead voice. Oh boy, all it's the hard ADT. for me. Okay, I, I. Well, boy, you know when you're talking, we well, got an album that I am the Walrus is on. Well, it's I'm real a, tough to say that this is the most psychedelic. I guess it's the most concentrated psychedelic. I just mean in terms of production, like it just kind oh, okay. of throws the kitchen sink of psychedelic, psychedelic quote unquote effects. You know, like I say, the less lead vocals, the incredible, the use of ADT, the reverse sounds, mm-hmm. and actually, what's interesting about this song is the stereo version. What they they took uh, a tr- they took the track they took the entire song and reversed it, and while they were doing the the stereo mix, they cut in in parts of it the backwards uh, version of, of Blue Jay Way. Okay, they did not do that for the mono version, which is interesting. So it's almost like it's the first stereo version that would have been more intricate than than the mono. Oh, that's very very yeah. cool. Okay, yeah, this uh, I'm not sure how this song would have would have hit you. I guess like if 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 you know you're coming off of Sergeant Pepper's, you know you might uh, you might be ready for this, but. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think like how how like a a normal an average Beatles fan would have received this song. Like you've just had an instrumental, what? And now we're into this. Okay, now we're really well, you, what? You might be thinking to yourself, George isn't doing an Indian song. <laughs> yeah, it's just like a normal song. You might be thinking that. I don't know. You might. Or you just might be thinking. Well, well you wouldn't necessarily know it was George. Be, you would just be, go, "It's a song." Like you. Of course, you know, you know it was George. How would you know it was George? Because he's singing. Okay, would you would you pick that up like immediately? I guess you would. Well, yeah. Why wouldn't you know? I don't know. <laughs> you're still not. You're still able to. Not necessarily. Oh, Sometimes really? George and John mix up. Okay. Like definitely Paul and Ringo yeah. have their own distinct. But when we get into the real kind of nasally, uh, psychedelic, uh, druggy stuff, yeah. yeah, I can sometimes mix up you a little just, John and George. You didn't have Unless a, if there's not a sitar yeah. really going nuts in the background, <laughs> then it's like, ah, I know it. You don't have my, you don't have my experience of you know laying in bed listening to a revolver over and over again with the back sleeve so I could see it. You know, it's say sung by John. That's right. Paul. You've got perfect Beatles pitch. So that's so I can pick it up right away. Before that, I did have trouble picking it up. To be honest, um, but what's interesting? Well, I was going to say it's ADT to create phasing as well. It's not just ADT. What they did was they staggered enough that it creates this kind of whooshing sound, this okay. white noise, uh, the the phase, which happened quite. A, became really common later when they started doing more syncing between four tracks. Because mm-hmm. then, if one of the four tracks went out of phase with the other one, you'd end up with this with that, that effect. And then they just started doing it purposefully, you know, it's on a lot of songs. But um, the interesting thing about the song is it's actually based on a real experience. George had gone to L.A. Mm-hmm. and uh, was staying in a, on a house on Blue Jay Way. It was a real place. And he was waiting for uh, Derek Taylor, who, at, who had been the, the Beatles press officer, but had quit because he uh, could no longer work with uh, Brian Epstein. And so he 
he was working in LA. He was actually representing the Beach Boys. He's the one who created all the Brian Wilson as a genius stuff that probably contributed to Brian <laughs> Wilson's collapse. But um, no effect, you know, no offense on Derek Taylor. I mean, he's doing his job. But um, so yeah, he was going to come and visit George, and he said, you know, don't worry, I, I'll find my way there. It's, it's sure it's not that hard to find. And then two hours, two hours later, George is still waiting for him, and he's tired, tired as all get out because he's just flown from England, so he's feeling the effects of jet lag. And he was waiting to keep himself awake. He noticed there was a Hammond organ in this uh, his house he was living in, this renting. And so he just went over and he started writing the song. And so he wrote the song oh, while he was nice. waiting for, for Derek Taylor to come. And then they took that very simple song and then they turned it into this crazy kitchen sink uh-huh. production with the cello and doing kind of... And the cello kind of echoes the Indian influence that George was, was you know, so even though there's n- no real obvious Indian instrumentation on it, George Martin's cello arrangement really reflects that that aspect of George. And I never I never uh, took any drugs while listening to this. But let me just ask our listeners who may have, yeah. and we're not judging you, Dave is. Dave is judging you, yeah. but uh, I'm not. Would this have been the point where whatever you've taken has kicked in? Because it feels like this would be about right. If you if you take something at the beginning of the album, yeah. then you've been through you know the get on board. Now we're on Fool in the Hill. Now you know, again this instrumental, and now. This feels like where things are kicking in. Yeah. Did this sync up well with an actual drug trip? Is what I'm asking. If anyone out there, you know, wants to wants well, to let us know, you have to you have to wait for acid to kick in. So you well, I'm not necessarily talking acid. This could also be pot. Oh, you okay. could like just uh, you know, and it's the I don't feel nothing. I don't feel nothing. I don't feel nothing. <laughs> and we're we're on board. You're right. Acid does take a little bit longer to kick in. <laughs> so uh, I just know that from reading Mad Magazine. Um, <laughs> One time in Mad, there was this great, uh, it was a diary of someone taking acid. Yeah. And it starts off with them, no, oh, it's having no effect on me. And pretty soon it ends up with them like writing in giant letters and drawing of flowers. And, yep. And I took it downstairs to read to my mom because I thought it was hilarious. She did not find it funny at all. I don't know why she wouldn't find her, her uh, you know, pre-high school son reading a thing about acid taking in Mad Magazine funny. It's strange. So we'll move on but to... But to be fair, she doesn't listen to this podcast either. That's true. You know, maybe she just doesn't like things. Doesn't like me. Um, <laughs> speaking oh, that... of that, your mother should <laughs> That was a that was an awkward segue. Okay, and uh, and this is uh, this is where the nostalgia to me really sure. start. I mean, this is just blatant nostalgia, you know, kicking in. Yeah, but, you know, it's a it's a fun peppy song. Just sure. Well, once again, definitely similar in style to Penny Lane and yes. using that quarter note piano chords. You know, uh, that he he seemed to love at that time. Yeah, and uh, then also Penny Lane, this and Strawberry Fields to me are a trilogy of nostalgia on okay, this album. Okay, yeah, that's the hat trick. <laughs> um, so yeah, so they came like so. This was um, the Beatles after they took a bit of a break and they came back to start recording again. And of course, they needed to. They started working on this song and they needed a song for the R world thing. So this was like I say, it was Paul's attempted contribution. They went with John's, mm-hmm. but. Um, so once this wasn't used for that, it immediately was put into the Magical Mystery Tour uh, barrel. And now, just because we've now kind of lightly touched on our world, and this was a song for that, can we discuss our world and what that was? No, we'll get to it when we, when we do. <laughs> okay. All you do is well, why why I want why I want to ask about that though yeah. is would this have been appropriate an appropriate song for that? See, I don't know what our world was. So was it something that was supposed to have mass appeal on the on the BBC or some such? All you all you need is love. It's much more. Uh, okay, on but the nose. what was the purpose of the show? Is what I'm asking. It was uh it was a broadcast uh between I think 24 different countries, mm-hmm. all broadcasting segments together. Canada was part of it, um Australia, okay. like all around the world. People 
they all put together different segments that kind of reflected their country in, right. in different ways. So, of course, the Beatles were kind of the, you know, the representative of, of Britain at that time. Right. So, so what you need then for that for that kind of thing is why I'm asking you that is you need a unifying song. Yeah. You need a, you don't you need an inclusive song. You don't need yeah. uh, us and them song. And to yeah. me, this is a let's all dance together song. You know, young and old. Yeah. We're all as one. You know, mm-hmm. here's a song that was even before your mom. Yeah. But you know, music is music. Let's all enjoy it. Yeah. So that's that's what the song feels like to sure. me, and that makes sense if that's what the special was. Yeah, kind of about. I, I think it, you know it would it met the brief to, in, to a degree, but not as much as as John's. Oh no. And again, yeah. Um, because, well, we'll talk about it. But um, <laughs> well, I just so, don't want to. get No, too I understand, much, but yeah. because, but I, I couldn't really comment on this to, without the information as sure, to what, okay. what the reason for writing it was. So just when we get to all you need is level, just be kind of like, yeah, we already talked about that. So let's. Um, <laughs> I feel I feel kind of like a, a kid going up to his dad and he's, like, we'll talk about that well, yeah, later. We'll talk we'll about, talk about uh, where the babies come from later on. Yeah. Like, but um, it's a song about this. Maybe okay. I should know. Anyway. Much later. All right. Now we're getting to a song. Now, now this next song. Wait a second. What? Are we already gone, Vesta? No. We can we can keep your mother. No. Go go for it. Well, just a couple things about it. Please, One sir. is that... Uh, well, I was getting rushed off to, to, to <laughs> you know, that song at the end of the album. Um, you were rushing to the end. So, um, they... Recorded this song. This is another. This was another song recorded outside of Abbey Road. It was recorded at Chapel Chapel Studios. Mm-hmm. So, um, because once again, the Beatles probably, you know, phoned too late to book time for the <laughs> for the evening session, which is weird because they were recorded really late. Like they came in like nine o'clock and recorded into the wee wee hours of the morning. Yeah, which was another problem for the engineers and stuff like that. These guys, no, they they just didn't work for the Beatles. They worked for Abbey Road. So the engineers might be there from nine in the evening till four in the morning. Then they had to be back at work. For the morning, in the morning, to do engineering for, for other people, and then the afternoon shift, and then the evening shift again. You know, yeah. so, you know, it was. Uh, anyway, I'm not. I'm just saying. <laughs> you are. Yeah, I understand. I'm sure Abbey Road Studios was uh, getting booked a lot because they were the Beatles studio as well. <laughs> so I'm sure this was no. working out. Even. I'm sure the Beatles weren't being a pain to Abbey Road at that time. I think the <laughs> benefits far outweigh any late night hours, and I'm feeling a little sleepy. Yeah, you're a very unsympathetic person. Uh, uh, Your empathy doesn't go very far. No, I think I'm just trying to get the big picture and just go like, <laughs> hmm, you know, you're working with the Beatles. It's yeah, fine. Sure. Um, tell, tell me again, Dad, about that time you got a lot of sleep in the late 60s. <laughs> tell me that story. Or tell me the story about the time you recorded the Beatles album. <laughs> sure. I slept until 12, the, son. They all, they all had the story. Mm-hmm. They had their Beatles stories, so but actually when they when they came back to Abbey Road, uh, Paul recorded a different like heavy version of this song, a uh, much kind of louder and and different version. But when it came down to it, they actually opted for for the earlier Chapel Chapel Studios one. Yeah, I could see. And it. just he changed. He added a bit more vocals and 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 John added an organ to it. But in the movie, um, when they sing this song, Paul is wearing a black carnation. The rest of the Beatles, I think, are wearing red carnations. And so this was part of the Paul is dead oh, okay. uh, mythomania, because obviously if you're dead, you wear a black carnation. It's a well-known fact. So their idea was this was a Paul McCartney impersonator that was doing yeah, the dance? Well, what happened? They Paul? didn't think he was a ghost in the show. Paul McCartney was riding on uh, motor scooters with, with his friend Tara Brown, who we know of as a person who drove his car into a van, who blew his mind out in a car. Okay. And uh, they, Paul had an accident while he was riding, and he cut his upper lip. Which is one reason why he, he grew a mustache before Sergeant Pepper to hide the cut. Uh, it went from there to Paul being decapitated in this accident, mm-hmm. and the Beatles hiring an actor to play Paul. Who is singing and recording all of Paul's music for the next four years is not explained, mm-hmm. but that was the that was the beginning of the rumor. 
And because the Beatles were such themselves uh, feeding into their own mythology and their songs, they, you know, whether it was cranberry sauce, cranberry sauce, or John muttering an, under his breath, for, and I'm so tired, mm-hmm. or... Um, now, you've said the cranberry sauce thing last episode, yeah. but why don't you say well, what that's about? Well, I was taking it as rather than him saying cranberry sauce was I buried Paul. Okay. And um, where his muttering at the end of I'm so tired was taken to say something like Paul is dead man, dig him, dig him, or something like that. <laughs> okay. And then um, on the Sgt. Pepper's sleeve, Paul is wearing a, a police uniform with his, on, or on his, I don't know if he's wearing a police uniform, but he has on his arm a a band, a, like a band that says OPD on it, mm-hmm. which was said to mean officially pronounced dead. It was actually for the Ontario Police Department, was what the band was actually from. But once again, you know, because that's a, when, when you die, they put a band on your arm that says officially pronounced dead, because it's not clear enough that you're dead by the fact that you're a corpse. Um, and then, uh, of course, later on with the, with the Abbey Road album cover, um, Paul, Paul was crossing the street with bare feet, and everyone else was wearing shoes. Right. Another certain sign this was an that, actor that, that was playing paul Paul, and it's giving you a clue because that's what the beatles were doing they hired an actor to play him right and then proceeded to drop clues that this was an actor into all their now songs did paul music. did was paul doing interviews around this time as well on tv okay so this is an actor that's so good apple so good yeah. like i could see how yeah. you could almost think now this is an actor because in the in that tv show he's just doing a little dancing yeah he could be lip syncing sure. but if you're doing an interview yeah one you've nailed his voice completely yeah. you look exactly like him but and you're and you're just you're pretending to be this he dead was, man he was such a good actor that he acted like he was writing hey jude that's how good an actor he was and then and, Paul said, I'm going to prove this so wrong, I'm going to outlast every one of the other Beatles. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I'm going to live forever. I'm going to be having hits in my <laughs> 70s. I'll show you. So on the, on the Abbey Road sleeve as well, there's a Volkswagen parked, and it says 28IF is the, is the right. license plate number. So that would have meant tw- Paul would have been 28 if, if he had lived. He actually would have been 27, but... That doesn't matter. Let's he would not eventually let, have been 28. That's right. <laughs> Let's not let facts get in the way of, of, our, of our dream. And then, uh, and then as an example of the Beatles, once again, dropping little clues um, on the Glass Onion uh, song on, on White Album, John there says that the walrus was Paul. So it's just a weird, like, they just love to, like, twist and have, have fun with, with, their own little, with their own little myth. But what the heck? Yeah. I, I'm just imagining someone who actually did believe Paul and, like, really believed yeah. it. Like there are well, people who really believe. No, it. I, I completely understand that. But like, I'm now thinking, like, I could see conceivably, you know, uh, writing all these songs. He could have written them before he passed oh, in sure. that period of time. Oh, well, totally. But now we're adding thirty. What is it, forty <laughs> years on top of that of yeah. like this fake Paul doing all this all this music. Uh, at what point do you just give that he up? He can hire people. He has a lot of money. <laughs> okay. Well, fake Paul has been doing very well for himself. Well, let's move on to what I would call the greatest Beatles song. All right. I am the walrus. Sounds good. Uh, I'll just say my little piece off the top because I'm sure you've got a lot. I do have a lot to say about this song. Yes, I, I'm I love sure this song you do. So much. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> to me, this is the uh, sister song to Helter Skelter. Like to me, this really? is the yeah, this is the good trip with a little bad in it. Okay. And Helter Skelter is the bad trip with a little good in it. Okay. But it's you know both uh, both seem to have a very similar vibe to me, uh, at least in terms of uh, of lyrics. Yeah, this one, this one is uh, is just crazy bananas. This is full on the the drugs have kicked in full on, and you're going you're going on the roller coaster ride. Now, why don't you tell me why you think it's the greatest? Once again, the greatest. Yeah, well, this, this is song... a, this is okay. First of all, yes. Dave is Dave is a Beatles fan. Mm-hmm. Yes, I am. Okay, 
Uh, you think Revol- hide it. Revolver is the best album. Yes. But this one has the best song. Yeah. And that best song of all the Beatles songs is this one. Dave, well, why? It oscillates wildly between uh, Strawberry Fields Forever and this song. Like, also, it's a kind of okay, a, so two of your favorite songs yeah. are on this album, and yet it's not your favorite album. <laughs> yeah, I know. Wow. Okay, interesting. This Revolver has the best songs. Like, I mean, the Wait best, a second. Like, overall. like it's Overall, best, complete yeah. package. From a, to, from a to a to Z, it run, it's the best. Okay. So, so what what to you uh, makes this the best Beatles song it, uh, to you of all time? Well, I I really I really like the psychedelic period, and so to me this is the this is like the absolute summation of that time. Like, it's this kind of the the ne plus ultra of all of all the psychedelic things they were doing, and it's not even that it's it's not even a kitchen sink psychedelic production like like um, uh, Blue Jay Way, which feels like almost it's a kitchen sink production because the song doesn't have you know, it's a little bit of a drone. It's kind of a, I don't want to mm-hmm. say it's a dull song. It's kind of unfair, but it's, you know, it's not the best George Harrison song. So you kind of fancy it up a little bit with a lot of backwards effects and phasing yep. and stuff like that. This song, this is absolute genius from the get-go. Like, this, as soon as it opens, it's fantastic. George Martin's score for it is, is, is this the greatest thing ever? Just his use of the horns and the strings and the singers and... And then the, the fantastic accident that occurs when they're mono mixing that made the song oh, even better. Okay, and we'll talk about this? that. We'll right. talk about it. <laughs> Feels let's, like every time. Let's go back a little bit. Okay. Let's go back to before they recorded the song. We're, this is like a Wes Anderson movie. I don't know. We've got to. We've got to yeah. always go back. We're we gonna go, go back. back. We're gonna go back, and then we'll we'll do the big reveal at the end. Yeah. You've got the way you want to pace this out. That's right. Let it unfold, my friend. Imagine me opening the book, and let's cut to the author writing the book. Okay. And let's cut to the person reading the book that he wrote. <laughs> That's right. Um. So let's go bef- before. Let's go back a little bit. The Beatles stopped touring. Once they did that, Brian Epstein felt superfluous to the Beatles. He wasn't there to help them with their music. They didn't respect his taste in music. What they respected was his ability as a businessman to help them. And once he, they stopped being a touring act, he felt like his, his job for the Beatles was finished. He, um, he was... He, he, you know, he was the first of his kind. I don't want to ever make fun or put down Brian Epstein for the work that he did. He was the first manager who ever managed a group like the Beatles. You can bring up Elvis Presley, but Colonel Parker was a terrible manager. How so? He's just terrible. Elvis what? Presley would have been. Elvis a, did well. Elvis Presley would have been. A, yeah, he did okay, but he could have done better, and he could have lasted a lot longer with a manager who actually managed him, okay. rather than just exploited him. Elvis never had good guidance, as a, as you know. Once he was signed to RCA Records, his musical his musical career goes down into the toilet. He joins the army. His his musical meaning his meaning as a revolutionary character of rock and roll was gone. He started doing horrible films, and he just became this anodyne, you know, st- sterile version of the of the Elvis of the fifties. Like Brian Epstein never did that to the Beatles. Yes, he cleaned them up. He took this you know these four tousled mop tops, and he cleaned them up. And he turned them into the greatest act of all time. But they were already that greatest act. They were just waiting to, to bloom, you know. And he recognized that. And he recognized he looked for a way to introduce them to the world. You know, and what he did was he took them and he cleaned them up a little bit into a package that he could present to the world of who they were. He didn't yeah. change who they now, were. Now, had he done this with anyone before? or this? No, the- this was his first time. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he just saw them playing in the cavern. He was a, he was a, he managed a record department at his da- mom and dad's department store. He was not a band manager. He in was any not way. a band manager at all. He had, he had tried to, he, uh, joined Rada. He tried to join, become an actor and he dropped out very quickly. He attempted to, to, um, I can't remember, I think he went to become an artist 
and that fell apart. And so basically, he gets kind of washed up into his parents' store mm-hmm. as and became the record manager, which he enjoyed because he enjoyed, right. you know, the music part of it and and you know finding records and being like the best. He would they were the best. Nem's department store in Liverpool was the best stocked record store in the north of England. Like, and he was serious about it. And when like and that's how he discovered the Beatles. Someone came in and asked for my Bonnie, mistakenly just saying the Beatles. Not and so he couldn't find it because it was Tony Sheridan in the Beatles, but. And he was curious, who are these people and why can't I find this record? And so he went to the cavern to see them. He actually got someone to bring him there because he was afraid that, he, you know, people wouldn't like him because he wasn't stalking the Beatles and they might have, he might have some problems. But when he saw them, he fell in love with them and he fell in love with their music, you know. And I don't mean them, I know he was gay, I don't, but I don't think he fell in love with them in a, in a sexual way entirely. Mm-hmm. There, there was an element of that, obviously. But he fell he in love. He clearly loved music. And but when you see something loved, that's the best yeah. music, that's a different type of love. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And But he loved their presentation on stage, like who they were, these characters, mm-hmm. their interaction with the audience, the way that they presented themselves. He loved all of that. He just knew that how, you know, they couldn't swear on stage and you couldn't smoke on stage or drink on stage or eat food on stage. Those kind of things that had to leave the act, you know, and they had to become more professional. And that's what he did. He, you know, he sent little memos to them, you know, he sent them to the tailors. He got them to, you know, dress up in a certain way and... You know, he, you know, he made them ready for the world, you know, and no one had ever done that before. And so he made some mistakes while he did that. We all know the, the cell tab, uh, disaster in America where, you know, he, uh, the, he said, well, how much do you want for, and they said 5%. And he assumed they meant 5% for the Beatles. So they got, so the cell tab was giving 95% of, of the, of the merchandising, uh, profits to back to these people who were, were merchandising the Beatles, wigs and guitars and pillowcases and all the rest of it. So the Beatles lost on, on a lot of money. They I did al- not lose money. Uh, yeah. They just don't, I always not get wonder money. about that. When you okay. tell me you tell me that story, the, the I always think, what's the other side of things? Okay. And I'm thinking, if you're merchandisers yeah. and you're making oh, first of all, you've got a fairly successful band, like you know, yeah. and then getting more and more so. Yeah. And your profit margin on it is you get ninety five percent of that. Yeah. What are you going to throw your What are you going to throw your effort into? I'm going to throw it into the thing I'm getting 95 percent on. Sure, you know, instead of this band over here that I'm getting 50 percent or whatever. Maybe so that's part maybe of it. that's why the merchandise was so good. Sure, you know, and helped to lift. I don't know how literally good it was and how much it was just cheap crap. Okay, but. well, it, well, I don't I don't care if it's cheap crap because kids don't care if yeah, it's cheap crap. Right. But as in the pushing but it's it, interesting. Yeah. It's like you're okay. you're as a merchandiser, mm. you're really going to want to push that stuff because okay. that's the cash cow that's coming in. Sure. So you know, where do you lift- defend Brian Epstein? <laughs> And then that lifts that lifts the Beatles' music up. Yeah, you know? yeah. No, uh, that's a good point. I mean, they would have been happy with with five percent. I'm allowed though. one good point a show. They that was mine. I'm done now. I'm just going to say though, the merchandisers were surprised when they got 95. They were they absolutely were, their jaws hit the floor. That's right. And I mean, Brian Epstein felt terrible about that. You know, he paid his own. He paid the legal costs, and he sued those guys, and he changed the the he changed the way the the payment structure. I mean, it's too late. The merchandising yep. boom had ended already, but. But, you know, he, he wanted to make it right. He also renegotiated a new rate for the Beatles. He, where most bands were getting around three to four percent, he negotiated a nine percent rate for them with EMI, got them a, I think a two million pound, um, you know, advance or bonus, I should say, a bonus for signing with EMI because he took, he took the Beatles and shopped them around. He went to CBS, he went to RCA, you know, tried to see what other people were, if they were interested in having the Beatles on their label. And so, you know, he did his job, but at this, you know, he was a complicated man. Like I said before, he was, he was a homosexual at a time when homosexuality was illegal. 
he was a sensitive man. He was an artistic person who wasn't just happy being a businessman. He didn't want to be at business meetings. He wanted to be doing creative things. Mm -hmm. That's why he rented the Seville Theater in London and put on shows there. That's why he mounted the, the Beatles Christmas shows, the Christmas pantomime shows, you know, so he could be in part of this creative endeavor. And clearly he you wanted know? to be part of the theater he wanted, once upon a time. Yeah. And as you say, like, I understand that England was a little different than America, though, when you're talking about the illegality of homosexuality in that. If you were in the arts in England, I think sure. at that time, you know, people knew, but you knew, and yeah. who, and you didn't really care. Well, you wouldn't say it out loud. Yeah. People but, cared, and if you were caught, you if you were, cared. if you were, if you were caught, but if you were in the arts, that would probably be the safest place for you to be. Yeah, you just didn't want to. Now he was also into rough trade. He liked very physical, violent sex with men, mm -hmm. so that was a problem for him. You know, to as a social part of your social life in that time to be a secret homosexual who was walking around with black eyes and things like that. That was difficult for him. And he didn't always make the best decisions of the people that he fell in love with, you know. And so, you know, so he was depressed. He was self-prescribed. He was self-medicating himself yeah. with alcohol and, and pills. And he became addicted to uppers. So, so he became addicted to downers. And what happened was, this was a weekend, the Beatles were, um, had, uh, went and saw the Maharishi talk at the London Hilton. And they were so impressed with what he said that they actually canceled a recording date at, uh, at a studio that wasn't Abbey Road. So, so EMI had to pay a 45 pound cancellation fee because they canceled like the day before. The so they had date. to pay 45 pounds? Yeah, I know. How'd they ever make that back? I know, from okay? the Beatles. It's hard to believe. But I'm just saying, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that's much a cost. Um, <laughs> I'm, so just, then, I'm just saying, you know, guys, let that slide. <laughs> I agree with you. So then... Uh, so then they went to Bangor, Wales, where, where the Maharishi was hosting a retreat. Mm -hmm. and, there, and, so, and so Brian Epstein thought we could invite some friends up to his country house in Sussex. And uh, two of those were Peter Brown and Jeffrey Ellis, who were NEMS employees, worked for Brian Epstein. And um, so they came. And then the other expected guests never arrived. And so Epstein became really kind of bored and disenchanted with this whole weekend he had planned. Because he, he was a very careful planner. Like George Harrison describes... Um, uh, Epstein inviting them to France to come and stay with him and he had everything all carefully arranged all their entertainment that they were going to be doing for the next week everything every day was planned and arranged everything was just perfect all perfectly planned and that's how he liked it you know so he had friends coming they were supposed to be coming he had everything all planned for them and they didn't come so he just left he just left Peter Brown and Jeffrey Ellis at his house and he said I'm just going back into London I'm going to go home so he, he left and he was, he was a little drunk but he left and then a little while after he left his, four of his friends come. So it's so sad that they didn't mm. come twenty minutes sooner. And so, um, mm. so he went home, and then at, he was a late sleeper, of course, because he was a person who stayed up late because he took uppers, and then he slept late because he took downers. And he had two doors separating him from the rest of the house, the rest of his staff. But they were they were kind of worried about him, and so they were trying to wake him up. They couldn't wake him up. Finally, when they talked to Peter Brown, he said, "You know, better break down the door." So they broke down the door and they found him dead. He overdosed on barbiturates. Probably it happened over time because there's a, there's a, the drug he was taking, I can't remember the name of it, but it builds up in your system. So he may have been taking, you know, he may have been taking like doses over, say, four days, uh, right. too, too much, not too much for one day, but too much over time, over four days with the mix of alcohol, you know, and stopped his heart and that was the end for him. So now the Beatles, uh, of course, they heard about this in Wales. Reporters come, they, the Beatles are just stunned. Like, they were just, they were absolutely gutted when Brian died. Like, to say that 
I mean, they could be mean to Brian. They like to tease him. They like to have fun with him because he was the straight Brian. He was the uncool Brian. He was the that's square what, Brian. That's what brothers do. That's right. And so they had their fun with him, but they were amazingly close, you know. And Brian was was there. I mean, um, Brian was kind of. I mean, like I said, he hated business. He was actually kind of winding down M's before he died. He had an agreement with Robert Stigwood. Uh, Stigwood was uh, manager of the, the Bee Gees. And Epstein came to him and said, you know, you can come in on board with NEMS uh, 50-50 and you can have the stable of NEMS artists except for the Beatles and Scylla Black. They will stay with me and you can have everyone else. And Stigwood said, sure, that sounds fine. And it had a buyout clause as well. Stigwood could buy out his half if he wanted to. So after Epstein died, Stigwood, of course, wanted to to uh, manage the Beatles, but the Beatles would have nothing to do with him. In fact, before when they'd heard about this possible changeover, they said, all we'll do for the next four years is record God Save the Queen over and over again. <laughs> they, they did not want to be managed by him. Yeah. And so... That would have been an interesting album. Yes. Well, the next four albums or whatever, yeah. So uh, to, to the, uh, the five albums, whatever the end of their contract was. And then the Sex Pistols went, we'll do that. <laughs> and right. uh, they had great success with it. So shows shows you there. So... Um, <laughs> Stigwood, after Epstein died, Stigwood actually, he took his option. He paid like a half a million pounds and took hit, took half the, the, the company away, kind of gutted Nems in a way. I mean, they sold the Beatles, but, you know, they lost the rest of their acts. And, um, and the, Beatles, the Beatles had no one. They had no one to look after them. Because that's what Brian Epstein did for them. You know, sometimes, I don't think, sometimes bands don't realize. Same thing happened to the Smiths. They had a manager named Joe Moss, who was an older man. Helped them through the early days was very integral, integrally, integrally, whatever. He was very completely involved in their in their early careers and very much a part of the family of the band. And when he died, they never replaced him, because you think to yourself, "Well, I can negotiate with a record company. Yeah, that's not so hard." But then you forget all the niggling little things that you. It's someone that makes it look so easy. Exactly. Yeah, and then you see, oh wait, wait a second, yeah, and people coming to ask you, it's kind of like. Suddenly, you're not just a musician. Now you're a director of a company, and yeah. people are looks easy to fly and... a plane, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that guy's just sitting up there. Yeah. Seems real calm. Sure. You hear from him every so often. <laughs> Give it a shot. And now we got two missing planes. <laughs> yeah. So he's well. They found that plane. Oh, did they? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, there you go then. So we only um, have one missing plane. <laughs> so they. Um, so yeah. So I mean, John Lennon himself says to him that was the end of the Beatles when Brian Epstein died. He knew that they were done. He said, "We're finished." In, in his mind, you know, and George probably said the same thing. It was really only Paul and his absolute need, his devotion to the idea of the Beatles and to being in a band, you know, that kept the Beatles going at that time. So mm-hmm. they had it four days after um, Brian died. They had a meeting and uh, they decided they had decided a few things. One was they were going to uh, postpone their uh, trip to India. They were going to go to India to study TM a bit further, but they postponed that. And their other decision was to press on with Magical Mystery Tour. Did they ever end up studying Transcendental Meditation, or was that just completely abandoned? No, no, they did. They went to India. Okay. So, um, yeah, so that was... So Brian died on... Um, he died on the 27th of August. So on September the 1st, they got together and had this meeting and decided to press on. And so September the 5th was the start of I Am the Walrus. That was the first song that was recorded Oh wow! after okay. this. So, it's, so I think... John brings a lot of his feelings There's about Brian into the song, and so it this. has that emotional element to it as well that I, I that I just that totally reaches me in this song. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, let's just talk about Lennon, who is always a paradox. There's two sides to him. You know, here he is in '67, the summer of love, all this peace and love all flowing around him, and you know he bought it wholesale. You know, he wrote a song, "All You Need Is Love." Mm-hmm. 
at the same time, he had this sort of personality, this sort of astringent, sarcastic part to him as well that mocked it, that wanted to make fun of it, you know. And at the same time, this whole counterculture, which had burgeoned in America more than it had, had, had burgeoned in, the, in Britain. It was kind of, it was very small in Britain, mm-hmm. compared to the States. Now, British authorities could look at the United States and see what it, what it brought there, all the riots and all the, all the discord and everything that was happening there. And they turned to Britain and said, we don't want this happening here. So this 67 in England was not the summer of love, it was sort of the summer of the crackdown. So uh, this kind of hippie magazine or newspaper, the International Times, was its offices were raided for subversive material. And they were shut down. And some of the members were sent away. And unfortunate bands like the Rolling Stones, who didn't have the, the, the shield of protection that the Beatles had, you know, were arrested for, you know, their, their home, um, uh, Keith, Keith uh, Richards' home was raided by the police. And Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were arrested for, on drug charges. Richards was sentenced to a year in jail. Mick Jagger was sentenced to three months in, in, in prison as well. How, how much time did they do? I think they did not that much time because, uh, it became kind of a cause celebre, and there's this very famous article written by uh, the editor of the Times, uh, William Rees Moggs. He wrote this uh, brilliant editorial called "Who Breaks a Butterfly on a Wheel," and it kind of churned even even like conservative or just sort of you know middle of the road British uh, feelings kind of against this idea that these people should go to jail because of pot. You know, they just seemed like ridiculous. So they actually ended up uh, not having to spend much time there. But when they were released, they did a great song called We Love You that opens with the sound of a, of a jail door slamming. <laughs> and the, uh, yeah. So um, England was so interesting back then. Like it's, I mean, it still is, but it's, <clears throat> you know, it's such a great place for the arts. And yet every so often, like uh, at the time, I remember like a, if you were going to do a play, any kind of play, you had to run it by the government first. At one time, yeah. I don't yeah. know if it's still the time. That was it. That was it. Was until like the early seventies. Still, you still had to run it by the government. The, the yeah. reason the reason I know that is because I'm involved in theater sports. Okay. Keith Johnstone, the person who did theater sports, he did that because he didn't have to run it by the government because you didn't have to run improvisation. Okay. By them. Yeah. And and it and it uh, it 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 got around. That's right. That. But yeah, you forget how the government can at any point go. No. There was an official position, but I can't remember what it what it was now. For the person, the person who is in charge of of uh, of that job of of approving or, or or disapproving of plays. So, and the other thing they did was the uh, British government, just out of pure mean spiritedness, it had nothing to do with danger. There was no risk. They shut down all the pirate radio stations that were floating out at sea, playing rock and roll music. Unlike BBC, which had its hour-long uh, light program, as it was called, yeah. that played popular music. The the Radio Carolina, Radio London, they blasted rock and roll all day. And it's, really great rock and roll. I don't know what the technical word for fear of the young is, <laughs> but I think it's like one of the greatest evils we've yeah. ever had, and that we have now. If you guys, if you're out there making fun of hipsters, you're part of the problem. Let me just <laughs> let me just say that. You know, we always fear the young. We always fear that. You know, sure. that's the, that's the big problem. Don't make fun of hipsters. Stop watching Portlandia. <laughs> um. So the music itself for the, so Lennon was at home. He was kind of noodling away on his piano, and he heard a police siren in the distance. The British police siren. Yep. The so that became the opening part of the song. We started doing the do, 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 I am he and you are. Although his original lyrics for it was just the uh, Mr. City Policeman that he wrote that to it. That was about all he right. had. And basically, <clears throat> the song is, it kind of combined three different songs that he was working on. One was about him sitting in his garden, and the other was about him sitting on a cornflake. He had these three songs, and he couldn't really finished any of them so he kind of all rolled them into this one song yeah but then the kind of the main 
um, Peter Shotton, who's a, a schoolboy friend of, of uh, John Lennon's, was visiting him at, at his home. And uh, Lennon had this hilarious thing to show him. A schoolboy going to Quarry School, the school that both he and Shotton had gone to, uh, had sent a letter to Lennon telling him that in their class, in their English class, they were having to analyze Beatles lyrics. Well, Lennon just thought this was hilarious because his whole time at school, he was hated by the school teachers. There's this disruptive nuisance, an idiot, you know, a dunce, constantly put down by these people. And here they are, you know, a short time later, studying his lyrics in class, you know. And I'm sure you're having a little bit of credit for it, too. Like going like, this was a fellow who who came here. He was, or are they doing the opposite? Are they doing a Steve Allen? Or are they just slamming it as like, this is uh, this is nonsense? What angle were they taking? Yeah. You know? Uh, no, they weren't. Uh, they were was, positive. Yeah. Okay, all right. And so um, then, uh, yeah, because they were seen as like poets. Didn't you ever do that in high school? When we were in high school, we had to bring a song to school, mm-hmm. and then you had to play it for the class and then discuss the lyrics. Well, I had my hippie uh, social studies teacher do that, but then he also like brought out a comic book, and I went, oh, this is great because I love comic books, and then he just tore it apart, basically, and just went, and this is why this is bad, and this is stupid, and it was there, and it was just like, hey, man... You know, it's it's the thing. There's no one there's more no one more right wing than someone who's left wing when it comes to something that they don't like. Then That's all of a enough. sudden, we should censor this. It's terrible. This is the worst thing in the world. And uh, and how how dare you say that about the Beatles? They were the greatest band of all time. I have a name for them, which I gave them in when I was 19 years old, which well, is hippie fascists. Mm-hmm. Um, so when he and Sean were talking, they started discussing this old schoolboy chant that they would sing in, in the schoolyard, which went "Yellow mattered custard, green slop pie." all mixed together with a dead dog's eye. And it goes on a little bit from there. But it was just one of those kind of schoolyard yeah. rhymes that you would say. And so they talked, you know, so Lennon incorporated that into the song as well. But as he worked on it, the kind of the schoolboy nonsense, nose thumbing, turns into this like one long invective, like this kind of, this damn you to just the British establishment, you know? And I think because he just felt at that time, like, you know, just this kind of sense of, you know, this kind of assault by the establishment on, on this counterculture, you know, so it's just this long, like, insult against, you know, education, art, culture, law, order, class, religion, whatever, it's everything, you know, just yeah. all this... It's a purge. It's just this incredible, like, this... And then, but even, and even, like, sense and rationality, you know, are also, because, you know, there is still this kind of weird uh, nonsense element to it that, and it's sinister, too, like, the Eggmen have this kind of sinister quality to it, that it's not like a joyful song. It's a very, very aggressive and very aggressive song. There also just seems to be like nonsensy words in here that it. it I mean, it. Reminds, oh yeah, he made up words for it. Oh, I got you. But it like what it reminds me of is a bit of the Goon Show on that. You know, it just feels sure. like this would be this kind of song would almost fit in if you funnied it up a little bit on an old Goon Show. You could see you could see them singing it on 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 there. He yeah. Well, he loved the Goon Show. Lennon loved the Goon Show, I and mean, that was one of the things that recommended George Martin to him is that he knew Spike Milligan as a mm-hmm. friend, and um. He, uh, um, he, I was going to say, we talked about last time, he was a fan of Lewis Carroll as well. Yes, definitely. This is very so, Jabberwock. Jabberwocky. Uh, and, of course, borrows the walrus from the walrus and the carpenter yep. from, from Through the Looking Glass, which he later regretted because when he reread it, he realized the walrus was the bad guy in the story. <laughs> and then it's also kind of a parody. Well, it depends if you're pro, pro oyster or not. It's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of a parody of, of what Lennon was, or what Dylan was doing with kind of passing off these sort of half-baked psychedelic lyrics that if you really carefully look at them, don't make a lot of sense. They're really kind of fun lyrics, but they don't really hang together. As, and so he's kind of making fun of that as well. I wonder if, if the school ended up having to like uh, look at these lyrics then later. 
Oh, I'm sure they did. Oh, that'd be I'm interesting. I'm sure a lot of people. A lot of people spent a lot of time looking over these lyrics and trying to parse them. Just out. I wonder if like the school that he was making. But no. But what I mean though is, yeah, look at us right now, mm-hmm. 2014. Uh, but the school that he's basically making fun of for being pretentious enough to look at the lyrics. This song is actually about you and this class specifically. Yeah. Ah, oh, that just that just gives you a feedback. That's that's a. Uh. And uh, what I think is really great, speaking of the establishment, is the irony of the BBC and a spasm of self-satire banning the song because of the use of the horrible word knickers in the song. So is this is this one of the uh, first songs the they've ever been self-referential on? Like you got uh, in here, they're referring to Lucy in the Sky. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I'd say this was the first time. And I think he's bringing that up because of the fact that Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was banned for supposed drug references. Okay. And so... You know, he, this, you know, it's just part of his complaints. As usual, Lennon brings in the personal with the universal when he complains about things. Right. I mean, later when you're getting to like Glass Onion and whatever, we're really, yeah. we're listing all the songs. And well, it's kind of like when he returned his MBE and his reasons were for like, because of Britain's support of the Vietnam War and because cold turkey was slipping out of the charts. <laughs> you know, like he just can't help himself but bring in that element of that self himself into things as well yeah this his is one personal complaints. this is one of two um references to previous beatles uh works in in this album it's the it's this obviously and then uh and then of course at the end of you know all you need is love we're having like but we'll get to that yeah we'll right. as we'll we say there. we'll get to that we'll get to that all right everybody we're let's gonna not, get we're gonna get to ahead. that together so get ahead of ourselves all right let's keep talking about uh, david's favorite beatles song of all time yes please let's do um yeah and i think I was going to say, I think you can hear his hurt about Brian Epstein in, in his singing in the song. Like, often it's, there's a lot of peak distortion because his voice is, he's singing with so, such, such force and such anger that, you know, even like he's just peaking so much that it's distorting. And, uh, it's amazing. The other thing that's great about this song, like I said, George Martin's arrangement of the, of the, uh, instrument, like his instrumental arrangement is so great. Just because he did it with Strawberry Fields as well. And, what he does is he would take elements of the, what the Beatles were doing and then incorporate it and echo it in his arrangements as well. You know, so you get, you get, um, Lennon's, uh, asides and, and vocal and things, tricks also show up in, in the, in the arrangement as well. And this is amazing. And then I think, um, there was 16, there's a 16 instrument, uh, 16 instruments were used for the, for, so it's a pretty big group, group mm-hmm. of people behind them. Uh, there was four violins, four cellos, a contrabass clarinet, and then three horns, and and then at the same the same day he brought in this group of people called the Mike Sam's Singers, and they were kind of like uh, the swingle singers or whatever. You know, they just they were one of those groups that could like back up anybody, you know, and could come in and do some real swing and hip stuff, Daddyo. And you know, they could be on like the Benny Hill Show. They could they could be on a whoever I can't think of like a Matt Monroe song, who's kind of the equivalent of a, a Tony Bennett or. or of in Britain, I don't think that's a very good equivalent, but this kind of that maybe Jack Jones would be a better one. All right, that kind of like you know, singing up to do, and you know they could be behind that. And so here they come into this Beatles session, and they're you know they're singing uh, ha 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 ho 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 he he he, and uh, I think it's actually he 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 ha ha. But anyway, um, maybe it's ho 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 he 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 ha ha. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I don't have it listed down here. And in then the lyrics, uh, so. and then oompa oompa, stick it up your jumper. <laughs> And uh, got one, got one. Everybody's got one. Just you know, so here's this group of really incredibly like straight singers coming in, four men and four women, and doing these shrill whoop, whooping sounds, stuff right. like that. But doing them very well. It's so good. 
It's so great. That's one of those ones you don't want to get all just your friends yelling at in the back. Yeah, Though you could. That, you could, that might but... be your initial thing. It's like if you got this schoolyard mm-hmm. vibe, yeah. why not just get your friend? No, no, no. no. We're going to make this as, as good as possible. We want people to really know what they're doing. Too, yeah. um, and then, if uh, you're going to do something weird, do it well. Yeah. Well, the thing I don't, I'm not sure about, I've never seen it anywhere. But I, maybe when we get to the second book of, of, tune, of the Mark Lewis and uh, Beatles biography, it's maybe going to be called... Tune in, turn on, maybe it'll be cold, or maybe it'll be in the dropout section of it. But anyway, uh, I don't know who suggested the the phrases. To, I imagine it was Lennon who said, this is what I'd like them to sing. You know, oompa oompa, stuff it up your jumper. I mean, it's hard to think of George Martin writing that himself. Yeah, now so, stuff it up your jumper, I remember from a uh, Bonzo uh, song as well. That's the only oh, other, You know, it's the end in, 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 uh, in uh, Jollity Farm. Stuff it up your jumper, do 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 Oh, that's right. Yeah, those are, that's the well, only that was bef- two times I've ever heard that expression. And I wonder which is first, because um, that would have been on Gorilla, which also came out in 67. Hmm, that's a good question. I'd have to look look back and see. Now, is that a way of saying, uh, put it up your bum? I think it's kind of a way of saying that, yeah. Okay. A polite way of saying it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then... Uh, we're a very clean podcast. We're very I don't clean. even like saying that, but, you know, I just <laughs> want to see if that's what the phrase meant. Sure. And then the final... Uh, the final, like, icing on the cake. I mean, this, if this is not enough for this you. This is a heck of a cake. If this is not enough for you, this fantastic sog. With this, a, is a, this is a cake with meat in with the middle. With a crabalocker fish wife and a semolina pilchard climbing up the Eiffel Tower. Sure is. If that's not enough for you, you, and the fantastic instrumentation is not enough for you, and the, and the oompa oompa stuff over your jumper is not enough for you, then when they were doing the final mixing session, they did it in two parts. They mixed the first half of the album up to sitting in an English garden. That part was done. That mono mix, mono re- remix was done uh, uh, from Remix 10. Then the sec- after that, the second part was done, uh, Remix 22, was done with a live feed. So while they were doing the mix, they, brought, they tuned in the radio and, and introduced it into the mix. And Lennon just tuned in the radio and just had it just tuning up and down the dial. And just kind of getting that sound of late night just going through the, through the dial. Oh, on, wow. Okay. While the song's playing. And then he finally found on uh, BBC on a BBC Third program, which later became BBC Three, shortly after this actually, mm-hmm. became went from being called Third Program to BBC Three, he found uh, it was broadcasting a 190-minute long version of Shakespeare's King Lear with John Gielgud in it. And so he just kind of left it there. And so what you can hear in the background of the song are some lines from, from Act Four, uh, Scene Six, starting with uh, Gloucester and Edgar talking. And he says, now, good sir, what are you? And then, he, and then Edgar says, a most poor man made tame by fortune's blows. And then when you get to the end of the song, there's an entire sequence of words from the play. And what it is exactly is Oswald cuts in. The actual line is, villain, take my purse. But you don't hear the villain. Just hear, take my purse. If ever thou wilt thrive, bury my body. And give the letters which thou findst about me to Edmund, Earl of Gloucester. Seek him out upon the British party, O untimely death. Edgar says, I know thee well a serviceable villain, as duteous to the vices of thy mistress as badness would desire. Gloucester says, what, is he dead? To about Oswald. Edgar says, sit you down, father, rest you. And that's a very final line you hear as, as the fade-out comes. Oh, wow. So, And that just happened to be playing that night on BBC. If they had done it any other night or any other time, this would not have, it wouldn't have been captured. Could, could have been Basil Brush. And... It could have been Basil Brush. Well, it was radio, so Basil Brush was a TV star. But Okay, very good. <laughs> um, so uh, the only thing was, is it kind of created a problem for the stereo mix. Because essentially, 
the the ha second half of the of the mono mix was a performance by John Lennon on the radio. I mean, he played the radio for yeah. for this mix. And so when you have the stereo, we have the first half in stereo. The second half is either in a true mono or just kind of a fake stereo because they could not make a stereo mix of it. There's just no way to right. separate the parts out. Yeah. And do you have to then like, contact the BBC and go, "Hey, we're we're airing one of your shows in our album. How's that work?" No. Well, no, you can't just do that. I can't. Uh, I can't just record the BBC radio and then like uh, put it on an it's album. It's just a short segment for review purposes, so it's fine. Okay, R interesting. R e v u e purposes. Get it, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. Send letters of hate to uh, Ian Boothby. Care of SneakyDragon dot com. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just—it's a fantastic song. Just fantastic. It hits, it hits you just right. It's so many, so much history, so much history, so many interesting so much elements. Creativity, yeah, yeah, creativity, all everything working together so well. I mean, Ringo playing, Paul's bass, well, John singing. So this is Dave's favorite uh, Beatles song after Str Strawberry Fields. Wait, <laughs> is that right? I said they oscillate wildly. Okay, could be one of those two, depending on what mood he's in <laughs> at the day. Uh, uh, why don't you let us know what yours is, by the way? Yeah, I'd uh, love out to there, hear. yeah, and would, uh, and why? I would really like to know why. Yeah, and, and what songs are your favorite for sure? Really put Dave in his place. So that was the end of the British EP. Mm -hmm. You put that 40, you took that forty-five off your dancet dancet stereo or record player. I guess you say it was not stereo. Took off your dancet record player, put it back into its sleeve closed it and put it onto your shelf or threw it on the floor whatever you did right. as a child with records and so that's the if this was the uk version yeah. of this podcast that's where we're, we're done now we're done but so Let's if you dinner. are if you are in england please stop listening to the podcast now well no those of you that are north american no. please continue because to listen in 1976 the the american version kind of became the british version as well so oh, all right if you you can keep listening okay if you listen to it before 76 yeah that's fine. stop listening now <laughs> and if you listen to it after 76 please continue to listen so are we moving on to the next song yeah let's start the second side of the record all right turn it on over and we've got hello so, goodbye yeah um now what's interesting about this song is it was intended to be a single it was recorded at the same time they were recording the material for magical mystery tour it was never intended to be in magical mystery tour it was just going to be a, a single to come out, not you know, kind of concurrently with the release of Magical Mystery Tour, which the Beatles like to do. I, I still have trouble with it. But I know we, we talked about it before. You explained it really well why you think it would be that way. But it seems weird to me that you would have an album coming out and then you release a single that has nothing to do with the album. Yeah. Although this one had the I Am the Walrus as a B side, so it did have a little bit to do with the now, album. Now let me ask. So you're saying this is the second side? We're all, we're now flip Let's, the album yeah, we over. Flip the album over. Now normally the, to to England you would just have that first. That's okay, right. Now now to me this this song really does make sense then because you flip this over you're like well we're done yeah. this album is over uh, <laughs> good know? goodbye and uh, what's what are we saying instead whoa whoa whoa. You're saying goodbye. Yeah. I'm saying hello. We, we've got more for you right here. The tour is not over on this Magical Mystery Tour. Let me introduce you to some other uh, places we're going on our journey. Yeah. So for me, hello, goodbye uh, works very well as stop. We're, we're not done yet. Yeah. Here we go. Here we go. Here's some more. And so, yeah, so it came out as a single. Uh, it came out two weeks before Magical Mystery Tour was released. Okay. And went right to number one. Because mm -hmm. I think people were wanted this from the Beatles. Yeah, I don't uh, think they want a strawberry fields. No, and and I'll tell you, it's it's jarring after I I am the walrus. It's yeah. like that's where we are. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. We can also do this. Sure. Everything's fine. Which is interesting because I am the walrus was the B side, so they didn't you know try to pretend there. There's no, mm -hmm. And I think 
I think Lennon was kind of peeved that I and the Walrus got shuffled off to the B side on this one. But. I never really understand why that's a problem. It's it's on the same thing. Like it's just <laughs> yes. there. But it's not wasn't promoted. Do as, heads as and the tails on a penny argue? You know about who's well, tops. But one's, one is A and one's B. So there's a difference there. One is A. Yeah. And, and one's one the big. And one's lower down. Now now let me ask you this, Dave. Like you're doing a concert. Where do you put your best song? Do you put your best song up top? Do you be- put your best song as your closer? I say you put your best song as your closer, and that to me is B side. Uh, you'd be surprised how many, how few people listen to B sides. Seriously, on their really. 45s. So you yeah. buy an out, you buy a forty-five, yeah. and you're like, meh. I don't want to get twice yeah. the value. Yeah. I just want to listen to the. Well, you know, I knew lots of people who did that. Well, those people that did that now have a nice mint condition. I am the walrus uh, that's uh, on their shelf that they can listen to now. So it's, whereas they uh, did the A side to death, and now it's all skippy. So unlike uh, Strawberry Fields, which was never reached the number one spot, was held out, held off by Please Release Me or Release Me, as the song's called. Um, it spent seven consecutive weeks at number one, and it gave the Beatles, uh, their, another Christmas number one record, which they'd had every year since 1963, except for 1966 when they didn't have a Christmas single. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a very friendly song. Kept like the I could see, yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's one of their best songs. No, it's, it's you kind know? of repetitive and, and, he, and it's just, from that. it's a contrarian. The guy's just, uh, annoying. If this was a real <laughs> relationship, this guy would really get on your nerves. Well, that's how the song started, interestingly enough. Alistair Taylor, who is like the Beatles' assistant, I uh, was with Paul, and they had a harmonium, and Paul was... There's two stories to it. When they're playing a word game, this, this is a word association game, and the other, Alistair Taylor says, Paul, he asked Paul how Paul write, wrote a song, and Paul said, well, here, and he just give me phrases, and I will I will give you an answer back. And El- Taylor said, I always suspected that he had the song written, <laughs> and that he was just putting what I said into the song, but... But yeah, so he gave him like these, you know, words like he said hello and Paul would say goodbye and he started doing the song out of these words that Taylor was, was saying. And so that was kind of the genesis of the song. The original title of the song though was Hello, Hello. It wasn't called Hello, Goodbye. That was the working title was Hello, Hello. And I don't know why they changed it other than Hello, Goodbye makes more sense lyrically. And the fact that there was a band from San Francisco called the Sopwith Camel who'd had a hit called Hello, Hello in January of 67. So Mm -hmm. maybe they didn't want to, I don't know why. But who knows? So they changed it from Hello, Hello to Hello, Goodbye. I think that's a better name. And what's interesting about the song is if you strip off the, the lyrics, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's a great song. Like the, the playing is great. Ringo's drumming's fantastic. The bass playing is out of this world. It's a really good song. And then you put on this, the repetitive, uh, lyrics and it kind of loses a little bit for me. Well, what it feels like by so the end great, of it, though. it feels like, uh, like a, like a child who is, uh, just learned a word. And just keeps saying it over and over, so it yeah. doesn't make any sense, and yeah. it's just it's just sound. And so by the end, with it's just hello, 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 hello. It's it, he's basically he's just yodeling, you know. Uh, by the, by the end of it, he's just getting he's just getting the sound of the word, but the word doesn't matter anymore. And then what's kind of funny is they the finale of the song, the coda, it was called the Maori finale, but they were saying aloha, so it should have been the Hawaiian finale. I don't know, I think they got it mixed up. And they had two viola play, players on the song, and. Uh, what happened was, so the, the Beatles filmed a promo of them playing in, in uh, Epstein, although Epstein was dead, they, he still, they still had this, Nim still had the Savile Theater. So they played, they played uh, for the promo, they play in the Savoy Theater. They put on their Persian Pepper uniforms again, because, mm-hmm. you know, this was before I'm the Walrus, so they were still kind of working out the Sgt. Pepper stuff. So they performed in their Sgt. Pepper suits, costumes. And, um, but the problem was, is they're obviously miming. And about the same time, the British Musicians Union in England brought in this, uh, fought to bring in this law that didn't allow miming on, t- on television. Yeah, I understand. But it's, there's no, okay. The quality, the level of quality for the viewer yeah. does not increase by this. No. It's work for work's sake. 
I guess. I think, well, it does in a way. I mean, a live version is more interesting in a way than a recorded version on, on television. I mean, it's kind of fun to see a person, a slightly, it's a slightly different version it, of no, what I understand. I understand with. that. But, you know, it would be, now let's just take a band like the Beatles, who are doing stuff that's very interesting yeah, and you that you could never no, do live. Right. And so you now eliminate the ability yeah. to do any of those pieces. Exactly. And so this song was 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 banned from, from British television. It was played in America, played in the Ed Sullivan <laughs> show. And then they did a mix of it. They took out the viola uh-huh. and did this mix of it so that they could be like, oh, no, it's just us playing. But it was still so obvious they were miming that they just never could get it passed. So it never was shown in England. Right. You can't just, you couldn't just have like one guy like doing the ham bone or something next to him. And like, we got this one guy doing uh, live stuff while we're playing the rest of it. It would all have to be, uh, uh, d- England, smarten up. <laughs> you know what? There's just a lot of busy nonsense and banning and, ah, uh, boo. The days of unions. I love I love uh, England very much, but they they are silly at times. Um, next song, mm-hmm. Strawberry Fields Forever, which we talked about last show, so we can kind of skip past merrily, unless you have something to say about it. No, no, uh, I just think it fits in very well with the nostalgia uh, trip that we're that we're going along. Sure, here. sure. So now we're full nostalgia. Okay, you know, and then Penny Lane following your nostalgia again. It's uh, it's there, uh, and you're saying like Penny Lane has similarities to uh, I Am the Walrus a little bit with the with the piano. You were saying no. Your mother should know. Oh, your mother, you should know. Sorry about that. That yeah. does make a lot more sense. Yeah, Penny Lane was kind of the the birth of that that particular playing style that follows through Sergeant Pepper through uh, getting better, through right. fixing a hole, through your mother should know, through uh, a little help from my friends. All use that little quarter note piano chord thing that Paul just loved quite a bit for that time. Right. Um, and you know when you're working away writing songs you know, kind of almost to order because you have to have put an album out and have songs on it. When you find those little helpful bits and help you write more songs, then it tends to appear quite often. John was the same. Now, those of you that are listening to this episode and have not listened to any of our previous episodes, yeah. what we're referring to is we've talked about uh, Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane because both were singles. That came out before Sgt. Pepper. Right. And what uh, what album were we talking about when when we were uh, talking about S- Sergeant Pepper. Sgt. Pepper. So yeah. if you listen to our Sgt. Pepper episode, uh, we talk about those. Yes. And if you listen to our Dr. Pepper inter- episode, we do it while we're burping. <laughs> so the next song is... Baby, You're a Rich Man, mm-hmm. which uh, was actually, here's an interesting fact, was intended for the Yellow Submarine movie. That's Really? Because uh, they already had agreed to do the Yellow Submarine film on May, the, on, um, I think they signed the contracts and stuff like that in May, May, in May 22nd. Uh, Ryan Epstein had signed the contracts and stuff for the Yellow Submarine to, uh, movie. Uh, but it was announced on June 7th that the Beatles had agreed to... to uh, to the making of an animated feature called Yellow Submarine. Right. And that they would be providing uh, at least three new songs, plus, and it would have some of their old songs on it. This would fit very well on it is Yellow in the Submarine. Film. It is in the film. Is it? Where is it was, in the film? It was cut out of some prints, but it, it is in the film. I can't remember now, sorry. Okay, because something about the film that I that I like, and it would make it even more so, is that it feels like you're going through uh, foibles of the human condition. So you have Nowhere Man, yeah. you know, someone who's just too wrapped up in his own nonsense. You get Eleanor Rigby with with the loneliness, and then you have you have this, and it's someone who you know it's it's the old you know you gain the world but lose your soul. Sure, you know you have a lot of money, but uh, where are you keeping it? Keeping it in a zoo. What do you got? You got no freedom, you know, but you've got, you got a lot of money. You're the richest you're the richest guy in the zoo. So good for you. Yeah. So this was originally going to be solely for the Yellow Submarine uh, film, but what happened was when they decided to rush release all you need is love as a single mm-hmm. it was taken and put used as the b-side 
another session outside of Abbey Road. This was the first one at Olymp- Olympic Sound Studios, which is was quite a popular uh, recording studio. And one of the, it was actually much more advanced in terms of equipment than than Abbey Road was. Um, the Rolling Stones recorded there. The Yardbirds, uh, Jimmy Page, um, all recorded there. So it was a it's kind of a big deal studios. And uh, later on, Led Zeppelin and Queen would use it as well. So, but um, uh, what's it kind of interesting is the engineer for the session once again, Jeff Emmerich, and the other uh, Ken Scott, who had kind of joined the team at this point. I didn't mention that. I should have mentioned that actually. That uh, Jeff Emmerich kind of excused himself a little bit from the Magical Mystery Tour recordings. He just found it not to his taste. Um, mm, okay. So he's not. He does some of the songs, but he's not in all of them. I can see so that. So yeah. Ken Scott uh, stepped in and, and did a lot of the did a lot of the engineering, the balance engineering, as it was called. Once again, he was kind of like Jeff Emmerich at the beginning. He was a, a kind of a, a young guy, a young unknown, wasn't working up through the ranks. He was just taken from record cutting and then promoted over top of the tape operator Richard Lush, who had been working with the Beatles since uh, Help or or earlier. It got put over him, and he became the balance engineer, meaning kind of the first person beneath George Martin in, in importance. And um, so, uh, yeah, he. So they couldn't come because this was at a at Olympic Sound Studios. They were employees of EMI, so they couldn't work at other studios. So the engineer in this was a guy named Keith Grant, who was a, who described himself as a real pusher. He was mostly used to doing orchestral work, so he was just used to like large groups of people that had to be forced to work, you know. So the Beatles came in. I came in at nine o'clock, and by three a, three a.m., they had the song completely done and mixed. It was the first song mixed outside of Abbey Road as well, so it was just done. Like, cause he just was like, "Okay, let's work, let's work. No messing around, no no pie and chips. Let's just go and get this done." <laughs> so, so yeah, it's uh, maybe that's something they needed at the time. Maybe I think you, I think you're probably right because at this time, this is because when we talk about "Baby, You're a Rich Man," we're actually going way back. This is mm-hmm. not like. It's hard to remember. Like this was not recorded after "I Am the Walrus." Right. This was recorded well. This was probably this is, would have come. This would have been recorded before Sgt. Pepper" came out. Oh wow! Wow. This song okay. Was recorded. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Neat. So, um, so yeah. And the other interesting thing is just because they were at, uh, because they work really fast. It's pretty relatively simple instrumentation. There's two pianos. Paul and John play piano, bass, guitar, etc. But there's this one instrument that happened to be at Olympic Studios called the clavioline which is a French uh, primitive kind of synthesizer. It was monophonic, so it could only play one note. It couldn't do chords with it. Okay. But it could be programmed to do different sounds. And so they get that kind of weird, kind of taut, tight oboe sound to this song. And that was done on the clavioline. And it had a little strip that ran down along in front of the keyboard that if you ran your finger up and down, it would create vibrato. So you could oh, play and, you could, you know, so John's just kind of moving his hands up and down the... Uh, the keys kind of ran, almost randomly playing this little bit while someone else is moving their finger up and down, creating the vibrato effect to it as well. And so if you probably, you might, do you know the song Telstar? Uh, kind Telstar, of, the Lonely Bull? No, the song Telstar was kind of a famous song in the early 60s. It used the clavioline. Okay, I well. just know Telstar from uh, Herb Alpert and, and whatnot. Is, okay. is that the same, am I thinking of the same song? Uh, I don't know. No, I don't think I so. I think the full song is called Telstar the Lonely Bull. No, the original one was a is a tribute to the satellite, the Telstar satellite. Oh, very good. Then I am yeah. completely wrong about yeah. that. Yeah. It was a Joe Meek production, so it was just kind of... Those of you that know what I'm talking about probably know that I'm saying it completely wrong and going like, no, that's... <laughs> it was the tornadoes. Yeah, come on now. <laughs> we'll look that up later on. <laughs> yeah, so um, the other interesting thing about it is that on the session tapes, it says the Beatles plus Mick Jagger. Mm. So... Mick Jagger was there. He was visiting the session, so it's it's conjectured that he probably sang the lead on the uh, 
Without lead, sorry, he's saying the lead. Hey, he's saying the lead of the song instead of John. No, I meant he's saying um, he's saying in the background vocals, which are pretty kind of a free for all. So he could be in there and you wouldn't know it anyway. Neat. And then the Beatles returned the favor about a month later by singing backup vocals on the "We Love You" single that I mentioned, the one that opens with the sound of the prison door slamming shut. Um, yeah, they sang backup backing vocals on that. So they weren't support. as uh, much rivals as. Uh, oh no! They, oh, good. Very friendly. I mean, Mick Jagger and Marianne Faithful were at the Sgt. Pepper, like the big, mm-hmm. uh, the big orchestral climax recording. They were there for that. Well, it's fun to play up uh, thing people as rivals. That's a, that's <laughs> yes. a good marketing. Uh, thing. Well, that's what they did. But you know what? I bet Coke and Pepsi. I bet those two guys get along fine. And then um, it's said that during the song, uh, John Lennon sings uh, as a little bit of a j- jab at Brian Epstein. Baby, you're a rich fag Jew. <laughs> so near the end of the song, you could hear him saying that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. There you go. It's John Lennon. It is. It it is. <laughs> he had a transgressive sense of humor. He did. And there you go. He liked to play the cripple. He liked to uh, play the spaz. He liked to. That was his thing. So, um, do you have anything to say about this song? <laughs> no. The last. The last. Uh, the last one minute. Defle- of, it deflated you entirely. A little bit. Did it? Yeah. Oh. I'm just like I don't know what if that would bleep or not, but I guess we're just gonna go with all that. That's fine. Oh, dear. Fair. Fair enough. Fair enough. No, I think we can move along. To, oh, what do we need now, Dave? What do we need? Uh, a little more time to finish the show? Yeah, uh, but also... Some money to pay for the... No, no, baby, you're a rich man. Oh, I'm a rich man. Yeah, you're a rich man. Don't worry about that. <laughs> well, so it's we're all when in you're podcasting. Yeah, we're all when in podcasting. That's where all the fat cash is coming. So when, you're, when you uh, are rich, then all you need is love. Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, this was written by some guys who were I rich. I don't think the Beatles meant that way. I think no. they were speaking more in a universal sense than in a sure. practical day-by-day. Okay, tell now, now really lay down for me what this show was that this was uh, written sure. for. okay. Because we're there now. It's called Our World, and it was a live It was live television broadcast. Right. I don't remember it because I would have been alive for about 13 days. And because it was live, it doesn't exist. So no one... Uh, no, one no, there was a... They did take kinescope? a... Kinescope? There's a 16-millimeter film of it. That's, okay, good. That's... Uh, how is it the um, UN? Strangely enough, really? Yeah. Why is it at the UN? Because oh, the international, the international aspect. aspect. Of it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And the country that suggested they do that was Russia or Soviet Union, who dropped out two days before the show was aired. The Soviet Union and seven other Eastern Bloc countries all dropped out, yeah. leaving a huge gap in the show. And that was the only ever jerk move Russia ever made. That Soviet was the Union. Only. Okay, but I'm also saying Russia. Okay. Um. So yeah, it was. Oh, so what? So I said before, it was 24 countries. Linked by global satellite, all so you know, because global satellite was new, so this was like a brand new technology mm-hmm. that allowed this to happen. And so, basically, you know, if you lived in Australia, you're watching the Beatles perform All You Need Is Love while you're eating breakfast. And if you lived in the United States, you're watching the Beatles perform All You Need Is Love uh, in the afternoon while you were ironing your clothes. I don't know exactly the time, but you know what yep. I mean? Like, it's just it all, it was simultaneous. So, Canada took part in it, Australia, America, Britain, France, everywhere, 24 countries. And so, and they were they weren't all musical ones. They could be various things. It might be like a little documentary about the country, um, just whatever. And like, uh, come with the Denmark stepped in to fill the breach that the uh, that the Soviet Union. Good for em- Denmark. Yeah, good good for Denmark. Um, so, so what uh, was so, this show popular? By the way, did it uh, get you know, good ratings? About four hundred million people watched it, which was good. I think that's pretty good. Good. I don't know what good ratings were back then. 400 million people. Like, first of all, you go like, oh, that's... But then again, there was only two channels. Okay. So it was like, if you had your no, TV no, on... No, 400 million people in the world watched it. No, I got you. Okay. But like most of those, like, if you were in if you were in Canada, you had a couple of American channels, and you had CBC, and yeah. basically that'd be that'd be it. So yeah. what, are, what else are you going to watch? <laughs> yes. You know, it's great, okay. but not like... There's a lot of options. Sure. So then, um, so the Beatles had agreed to appear on it in May. They said, okay, we'll do it. And then... 
Uh, and they, you know, they're going to be they I, they were agreed to be shown in the studio working on a new song. Mm-hmm. So that was that was their that was the the idea of it was it wasn't just going to be them playing a song. Like we just see the song pre- performed. If we ever see like a clip of it, we just see them performing the song. But it actually was six minutes long. The, the segment that they were a part of. Oh wow! And it goes into quite a bit of detail of of them doing this song. And so the only brief from the BBC was that the song be simple enough that listeners from around the world can understand it. So in a way, your mother would know it doesn't really fit that because nope. it's a bit too complicated for that. Whereas all you need is a very simple message and it's, you know, gets it out there. Even if you don't speak English, you, you got the chorus by the end. Now, apparently, you uh, you know, it was, like I said, it was broadcast on June 25th. They began recording it on June 14th or practicing recording it for June 14th. Before that, like a couple days before that, John was like, I guess we should get a song together for that, shouldn't we? So he put in his contribution. And, uh, and so it was, and like Baby Richman, it was also recorded at Olympic Studios. They did the basic backing track there because they, George Martin didn't want to have it to be a total disaster. So what they did was they performed live to a backing track. So, um, so, uh, what, uh, I can't remember exactly what they had, but they had like, you know, they had drums. Maybe not. They didn't. Maybe they didn't have drums. I don't know if it matters actually. Um, what's interesting is um, Lewison talks about in in the Complete Beatles recording studios. I don't know if this is an example of the kind of uh, carelessness that was creeping into the Beatles' work at this time. This is before Brian Epstein died. This is before before Magical Mystery Tour. They got really working hard on it. Um, but the Olympic Studio engineers comment to Lewison how surprised they were, how careless the mix was, and the fact that there was like talking over it and stuff like that. But and also in, in things says Martin wanted requested that. So I wonder if he just wanted a live feel to it, that mm-hmm. it wasn't really carelessness, that he just wanted to have a kind of a spontaneous element to it that wasn't totally like like uh studio sounding and yeah. had a bit of a live sound. Not, not sterile, yeah. You want it yeah. sound more organic. So okay, so yeah. Only the vocals, bass guitar, the lead guitar solo by George in the middle eight, the drums and the orchestra were actually live. The rest of the ba- the rest of the backing track was, was pre recorded. So um so what they did was the day before the BBC came, they brought all their cameras. They parked a, they squished this big giant van into the uh, parking lot of Abbey Road, ran all their cables and stuff into the studio, and then the Beatles rehearsed the segment uh, several times, like them playing the song, working up towards the song being then. And so how it worked was, um, how it worked was okay. The whole sequence started with the Beatles playing and singing the basic song. So they're just kind of playing, and there's no orchestra yet and stuff like that. They're just kind of playing the song, looking like they're rehearsing it a bit. And then they cut to George Martin, who was wearing like this great white suit. And he says, I think it's time that we brought the orchestra in. And so then there's a shot of like the orchestra filing into the studio. And Mel Evans took advantage of this to get into the shot and remove some teacups. So he gets to appear <laughs> in it. And then, uh, and then it's, we cut back to the Beatles. Now they're all, they're seated on, they're seated, they're seated on stools, except for Ringo, of course, at his drum kit. But the rest of them are seated on stools, surrounded by their friends. All these friends and, 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 uh, family are surrounding them. And then, uh, because George was so busy in this, in the, uh, studio trying to organize all this, uh, this, uh, guy who was a saxophone player for the Manfred Mann band, for Manfred Mann, Mike Vickers, he did the actual conducting of the orchestra. So, so then, uh, so yeah, how it works. So then you cut to, I don't know if you've ever seen it. There's kind of weird feeling, but so it cuts to, shows the Beatles already and stuff like that. And then it cuts to George. Mm-hmm. And he's like, we're ready to go. And then he kind of moves these levers up and then yep. he kind of looks at the window and then the camera kind of comes towards it and then it cuts to the Beatles inside. That's right. Yeah. And that's how the song starts. And then the actual, so then the orchestra starts to play and they, they, uh, do a little bit of the, the La Marseillaise, yep. the French national anthem. And then, then. And, all, and France is listening going, Hey, they're going to just do our national anthem. That's nice. Uh, 
and they incorporate a bit of In the Mood into it at the beginning. Oh, okay. And a little bit of this French uh, hit called Chanson d'Amour are all kind of quoted in the beginning of the song. Then the Beatles, of course, play their song. And then there's more musical quotations at the end. So they, a little bit of green sleeves, a little bit of a Bach, part, uh, Bach invention, number, number eight. And then a little bit more of In the Mood, you know, that that kind of... And then uh, a little bit of She Loves You, which actually grew out of John ad-libbing that while they were rehearsing. He started, he ad-libbed She Loves You. He also sang She's Coming Around the Mountain When She Comes <laughs> while he was doing it. And then so... The interesting thing is Martin thought all the songs that he was using, except for the Beatles one, but since it was Beatles, it was fine. But he thought they were all out of copyright, but In the Mood wasn't. So EMI actually had to make a settlement to the publishers of that song for the use of it on the record. Um, yeah, so it's pretty interesting. And some of the friends who were there were, as I said, Mick Jagger was there, Marion Faithful, because of that terrible rivalry with the Rolling Stones. <laughs> Keith Richards was there. Uh, Keith Moon from The Who was there. Eric Clapton was there. And Graham Nash from The Hollies. So, and then lots of friends, Mike McCartney, um, Paul's brother, and the, all the wives, Patty Harrison, and uh, everyone was there. It's a nice moment in time. It's a great moment yeah. in time, and the fact that it was totally live. And uh, Jeff Emmerich, who was working in the, who's also working in the studio with uh, with George, um, he says, Lennon didn't look nervous, but if you knew John Lennon, he was very nervous, <laughs> singing for approximately 400 million people live. And then uh, when everyone left... It's, it's nice, by the way, that there's something that would make him nervous at that point. Yeah, you know? I mean, yeah. I know, you'd be kind of jaded, you'd think, but no. Yeah, but like, that's no. great. That's great that there's like a challenge. Just that's one nice. minute. Well, because, you know, it's it's for posterity, too, Absolutely. Right? It's not like he's at Candlestick Park where it's so loud, no one can hear him. And there's, you know... Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter if you blow it, you can get it right the next show. But uh, so then after everyone left, they, the Beatles stayed behind they recorded the, there's a snare roll before the song starts so this is the Mercier starts there's a snare roll from Ringo so they recorded that and then John corrected a little bit of his of his vocals and it was mixed on June 26 and July 7th it came out as a single so it was a pretty fast turnaround actually. and how did it do as a single it was a big hit it was a big hit it's not it's not a Beatles song I love yeah, I like it a lot because it's the Beatles. But yeah, it's it, it, you know what I think it got overplayed when it, I was young. a little goes a long way. Yeah, yeah. And I've it, had to sing it with church choir. That's that the is thing. the worst thing in the world to have to do. Right, sing it's the like one that. that again the uh, the hippie social studies teachers would always play, and yeah. and they, they they end up ruining it for you a little yeah. bit. It's on a poster. It's on a this. It's over that. It's like okay, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. We you get know. it. But you're right. As a moment in time, it's it's just great having that having that. It's like a, just a little piece of history. One interesting thing, uh, there's a there was a Beatles special about the making of, of Sgt. Pepper that came out, you know, it was like 30 years later or whatever, so it would have come out in in 98, I guess. And they interview a bunch of, maybe it was 20 years later, maybe it was in 88. And they interview a bunch of people, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was 88, and they interview a bunch of people for it, like Alan Ginsberg and George Harrison. And, and, they, and they ask all of them, because they also mentioned this on, they ask all of them, is love all you need? Everyone prevaricates, except for George and Ellen Ginsberg. Both of them say, yes, love is all you need. I thought that was interesting. That Of all those people who sang that song, who were part of that time, the rest of them, you know, well, you know, love is important, but you also need money, you know, stuff like that, right? Nope. They both say, love is all you need. I thought that was interesting. Hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. Okay. And so, uh, um, to sort of finish up with the uh, Magical Mystery Tour, the album cover, we kind of talked about a little bit, but this was the first album cover that did not feature... Uh, pictures of the Beatles on it. I mean, it does have the Beatles, but they're in right. animal costumes, so there's no identifiable Beatles on this. Well, it cover. felt like you know, with Sergeant Pepper, they were on the they were on the cover, but they were in character. And this feels like the second album that they're in character. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, there's no visual 
well, here's the Beatles, you know, right. like, at least with Sgt. Pepper, you can still go, the you Beatles. Can see their, you can see their face, yeah. right? There's, they're, they're the Beatles' as Yeah, yeah. I, I would say, like, and thematically, you know, all you lead is love is what you learn at the end of, you know, your trip. You know, you've gone on this big trip. Yeah. We've gone through nostalgia. What if we learned from everything that we've seen and all that we remember and all that we care about? And, you know, and I guess the loss of someone that you loved was, in the end, all you need is love. That, that would be... So really what you're saying is this is a journey from birth to death. Well, they were uh, dying to take you away. <laughs> That's exactly dying right. Dying to take... You know what, Dave? Maybe you were dead at the beginning. The whole time. Yeah. Maybe uh, Maybe that's that's the thing. So what have, what have we learned, Dave, in we, this podcast? We learned that we can fill a lot of hot air with uh, talking about... We the also learned, which you don't know, that you have to plug in your computer. Oh, Otherwise, yes. you're going to have to stop the show halfway through. That's okay. And start things back up again. Gave us a chance to go and put some money into the... Uh, into the meter. Yeah. You know, uh, the, you know, the meter of the soul, man. <laughs> that's what it is. Exactly. And we also learned that sometimes social studies teachers uh, are annoying, but when you get to be adults, you can make fun of them on your podcast. There you go. And it all works out. Yes. Revenge is best. Is a the treat best served cold? <laughs> Very so, cold. Is a pod best served is best, cold? Is a pod best served cold. There you go. Now, um, again, we've probably gotten things wrong on this uh, on this podcast. Sure. Uh, or maybe we've gotten things right and you want to talk to us. Either way, we well, love- we've just left things out because we feel like there's not enough time to mention every possible detail. Abs- absolutely. We I are s- we are not uh, we are we are not an EP. We are That's the, right. You know. To be honest, everyone I usually leave about a quarter of the notes that I bring in. <laughs> I usually do not say everything that I have just because I start getting nervous. So if you want two hour mark. <laughs> if you want to have uh, your say and we 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 do <laughs> really love hearing from you. Uh, sneakydragon.com is our website. You can always leave us a message there on our message boards. We have, as everyone does, because it's the year that it is, a Facebook page. We also like hearing from you on there. Yeah. Uh, and is there any other way of reaching us? Oh, you can also leave a comment if you'd like on iTunes. We appreciate uh, the comments you've been putting on there as well. Let us know Cer- what you like. Let us have. know what you want more of. And uh, put the appropriate amount of stars one, five, it's up to you. Yes. I don't like the other shows that go, give us five because we need, don't, I'm yeah. not hat in hand. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. You know yeah. what? Because all you need is love. Exactly. And listeners. We need listeners as well because otherwise we're just doing this into the darkness. Sure. Well, everybody, thank you for listening to uh, the Magical Mystery Tour. I've been Ian Boothby. I've been David Dedrick. This has been Completely Beatles. If you want to listen to another podcast of ours, that's Sneaky Dragon. Um, and that is it for us. <laughs>